This is not the media. This is hell. Hi, hello, sorry, yes, it's producer Alex again. Your host Chuck is a late scratch with back problems. He has front problems too, but he's been dealing with a lot of back pain whenever he sits down or stands up or lies down, so he wasn't able to do this week's show. I was, though, and I put together a four-hour archive playlist all about Russia. Uh, You may have heard of it recently. This week, Larry King examines mass privatization and the post-communist mortality crisis. Andrew Coburn asks who profits from the new Red Scare. Peter Pomerantsev watches Vladimir Putin's surreal television. Sean Guillory examines hard times and tough questions for the Russian left. Tony Wood helps us understand Putin's hand in post-Soviet Russian politics. And China Mieville explains what Russia 1917 could teach the post-Soviet pre-revolutionary world. On the line with us right now is sociologist, Cambridge sociologist Larry King. He is co-author of Mass Privatization and the Post-Communist Mortality Crisis Across National Analysis, which appeared in the latest issue of The Lancet. Good afternoon, Larry. Good afternoon. Uh, you're in London right now, correct? I'm in Cambridge. Okay, you are in Cambridge. Uh, so 50 minutes outside of London. Yeah. Okay, uh, so live from Cambridge. By the way, that British yeah. accent of yours is really coming through. Yeah, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you from the Ohio region of England? No, I'm from, uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. New England, yeah. Uh, a lot of people have been saying that, you know, as your study puts it, the pace of economic transition was a key driver of increased mortality rates in post-communist European countries. But nobody had done basically the research to see what the impact really was. And that's what your report does. That's right. I would imagine yeah. that any change, no matter what it is, has an impact on the stability of any nation, no matter its cause, its intention, its effect. So what makes the upheaval that led to instability in, well, 1990s Eastern Europe, but mostly in Russia, what makes that, uh, the events that led up to that instability unique? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that there's evidence that any change increases, you know, uncertainty and could have negative effects. in the Soviet Union and elsewhere throughout the post-communist world, uh, you know, the, the amount of changes that occurred in the, such a short period of time is what makes it unique. Uh, I mean, you think about the, the originator of privatization, Margaret Thatcher, right, privatized about 30 companies in 11 years, and that was problematic. Russia privatized 16,000 giant firms in two years. Right, so the scale of the change was so enormous, and they were changing the political system, the economic system, and they tried to change it all at once. They tried to change everything at once. Uh, so it was a, a really tremendous, uh, tremendous shock. You know, uh, we have had Jeffrey Sachs on our show in the past. Uh, he is the former head of the UN uh, Millennium uh, Development Goals uh, branch of the UN, and he wrote a book called The End of Poverty, and mm-hmm. he has I, he is now one of the leading voices, uh, leading anti-poverty voices in the world today, I would say. Yeah, but I find he, that 
funny. Right, exactly, because he was also the person who was behind the mass privatization that happened in uh, post-Soviet Union Russia that led to the uh, drop in not, life expectancy. Not only that, but he was the author of austerity programs and shock therapy in Latin America uh, and in Bolivia, uh, in particular with the first case in 1984. Um, so the idea that this guy is now a major advocate for the world's poor, you know, maybe he has a guilty conscience. He's trying to, he, if anybody's, you know, no one person is responsible, right? And no one academic can be responsible, but he certainly was in, in a central position and was a very loud and advocate and persuasive uh, mouthpiece for this kind of neoliberal radical policies. So in my mind, uh, he is quite responsible for much of his poverty. He's now, of course, trying to alleviate. Right, but, but you know, great, great for him to try to do it now. That's fine. Exactly, but you know, that's and so I, I guess this is a two-part question. What does Jeffrey Sachs' belief in uh, rapid mass privatization of post-Soviet Russia say to you about the state of? I don't know what you would uh, the state of economics at that time in the 1990s, and what does his apparent transformation into someone who is really concerned about the exact same effects that his mass privatization had back then. Uh, What does that transformation say about the state of economics today? Well, for one thing, as Jeffrey Sachs just uh, responded to our article in a letter to the Financial Times, which we haven't seen. I mean, I haven't seen the whole letter, but, you know, he wasn't acknowledging, I doubt he had ever had even read the study, and he said it, the methodology was completely wrong, when, of course, we use the same methodology that he used, you know, but a kind of a more sophisticated version of it. Uh, you know, and he said that they didn't do anything wrong, and in fact, the quicker privatizers and the quicker the transition, the better off they were. So what that's telling me is that he hasn't learned anything from the empirical record, right? So I would not trust him to formulate any anti-policy programs, and the, and the idea that him, this, that Jeffrey Sachs, with his record, can be kind of considered an expert on anti-poverty programs is, I think, actually extremely troubling about the state of economics then and today. Uh, and I mean, I could go into greater details about that. I mean, there's all sorts of different economics, but uh, there was a trend, uh, you know, started by Milton Friedman, um, and it certainly rose to prominence in the 80s and the 90s, uh, of so-called neoclassical uh, economists, neoclassical neoliberals, kind of the technical term. And these right. are kind of radical free marketers, and they basically have the theory that markets do everything perfectly, and the state is only a hindrance. And, you know, I'm not hearing much different. Uh, and, that you know, they kind of believe that they have a monopoly on theoretical and empirical knowledge about the economy. Um, you know, what's amazing is, you know, they have a, a, such a belief that they, they think kind of the, the economy is like physics and that they're the physicists and they know they could, they could create all these precise mathematical formulas uh, and predict the world. Um, but, you know, they've done a startlingly bad job of it. Uh, and it's more and more apparent that their policies uh, – lead to disaster. Yeah, you know, uh, part of your, one of the things that your study reminded me of, 
or at least maybe you think about more, is what an economy means, what economy means and what it means within the sense of uh, kind of uh, everyday parlance. When people here in the United States talk about the economy, they'll say the economy is doing well because the Dow Jones went up or the NASDAQ went up or unemployment is only at, I'm just making up numbers, 6.2%. And last month it was at 6.3%. That's the way that the economy is viewed. But you write about how with this mass privatization, especially of post-Soviet Russia, uh, you found a correlation between uh, unemployment and the uh, and shorten life expectancy. Absolutely. So There's... what is lacking in – because the one thing that I, I constantly hear is people talking about the economy as right. are we making more money. But what is lacking in the understanding that uh, that we should have of the economy and the impact that it has on people's lives and deaths? That's and indeed. Uh, I mean, you're, you're you're bringing out an excellent point about one of the shortcomings of the neoclassical model and the the way the economists think of uh, of the economy is that the economy is made up of people. The firms are made up of people, so all kind of economic action is actually affecting real people. Uh, and you know that's not in the equation. You know, so these not just in these policies in the post-communist countries, but Many economic policies, they, they're formulated, and it's as if they treat the economy as separate from the political sphere and separate from society and isn't made up of living people who are actually affected by these policies. Uh, and, you know, they, should, they need to think about that. Any economic policy that you enact is going to have consequences for the lived experience of people. And as policymakers, you have to be thinking about that because the side effects could be uh, catastrophic. Your study finds that, uh, and I thought this was really interesting, your study points out that the effect of privatization was uh, reduced. Uh, so the effect of privatization is increased by unemployment, the the uh, potential right. for a shortened life expectancy, but it's reduced if social capital was high, uh, which might be relevant uh, to other countries in which similar policies are considered. And by social capital, you mean uh, kind of the investment, how much uh, you have socially invested in the community, uh, your mortality rate will go unaffected in a mass privatized society, but due to substantial unemployment, you could have a much shorter life. Is the environment created by mass privatization uh, conducive to social investment, to belonging to social groups and organizations that make you feel uh, invested in your community? Because I thought that the idea was, of mass privatization was to get the means of production out of the hands of the state, and now you're giving it to private companies. Does that necessarily uh, embolden you or encourage you? Uh, to- that's, a, that's, an, that's an excellent point. Oh, yeah. the- uh, basically, the, the logic of our argument was firms became, I mean, it's complicated by all reality, but a very simplified version. Firms became privatized. First thing the new private, what you do is you fire people you don't need. Uh, people become unemployed. It's very stressful. They start to drink, uh, and they eventually have a, the combination of binge drinking and very a lot of stress. Uh, causes increased mortality. Now, uh, in that story, what we found statistically was this thing called social capital, that in those countries where people were members of lots of organizations, church groups, labor unions, etc., that that last link of the argument wasn't there. So people may have been made unemployed 
right? But if they had a strong support network, uh, that would somehow mitig- that would mitigate the effect. They would have they would wouldn't have to they wouldn't internalize all of them stress them, all of the stress themselves. Now your point was well, doesn't this radical privatization kind of break up that social capital? And absolutely, there's a lot we don't get into that in this art in this article, but there's a lot of evidence. Um, and that, in some respects, is the point of these policies, to individualize, um, that this itself is devastating uh, for, kind of, for communities. Um, you know, the, the article's actually, you know, the, the, you know, statistics, one could show lots of different things with statistics. Uh, you know, what that, in those countries that did well, uh, even, even though they had some mass privatization, there was also extremely low unemployment and very, very generous state expenditures. Um, so, you know, if you become unemployed, but you have uh, health care, right, and that you have a safety net, it doesn't necessarily have the same catastrophic effect. Um, right. Yeah. You know, and another problem is that communities uh, and these community groups, you know, they require money, um, and they often require although economists don't like to talk about it, you know, money that ultimately comes from the state. Uh, and privatizing, it turns out, is also a really good way to bankrupt your state. Uh, because it's firms, it was actually the profits of state-owned firms, which is how these states funded themselves. So, so by privatizing, they severed, without having a tax system already in place, they severed, you know, the major mechanism for extracting taxes. So states went bankrupt. So it undermines the state. It undermines the ability for a community to organize. Uh, it leads to uh, lower life expectancy. There's definitely the potential for, especially in um, high capital industries like manufacturing, there's definitely the potential for massive unemployment. So mass privatization definitely. seems to be uh, very much so. And you you compare it to, for instance, what was going on within uh, the former Soviet Union as compared to what happened in the Czech Republic. They did it more gradually. Uh, you call these people institutionalists. Um, they did it more gradually instead of like forcing in a mass and rapid privatization. But your, your report also says that UNICEF attributes more than 3 million deaths to this mass privatization transition, and that other studies show 10 million men are still missing, and half of Eastern Europe still hasn't returned to pre-transition life expectancy levels. Yet those who champion these kinds of privatization, uh, neoliberal, pro-U.S. economic policies, include the recently elected President Sarkozy in France. So where does the debate around privatization now stand in Europe? Because we're over here in the United States, and you know that there is little to no debate. There hasn't been any debate whatsoever until the last three to six months. Now there's little to no debate about privatization and the problems of a, uh, you know, the free market, the so-called free market ideology. But where is this argument, where is this debate standing now in Europe, especially after we see Sarkozy, pro-U.S., pro-neoliberal, takes charge of uh, France? Yeah, well, you know, this is actually outside of my area of expertise. I mean, I don't really know, uh, you know, the French, yeah, Sarkozy is, is definitely more right-wing and neoliberal, but, you know, they're, he's much more constrained by domestic politics in France. You may have noticed uh, that they have a very active culture of protest and resistance in France. So, um, 
my guess is that he won't push. Nobody's pushing privatization over here right now. Uh, you know, I mean, all all the governments are busy, like they're doing in the U.S., injecting huge shares of capital into companies. However, unlike in the U.S., they're claiming some control over their companies. In the U.S., what we have is what I call bastard socialism or socialism for the rich. We're giving money to the richest companies uh, without any corresponding control. So the government's buying shares, but it refuses to act as an owner. Uh, so all the profits, all the risk goes to the people, and all the profits go to the owners. Right. Um, so, you know, we end up. Look, I'm, I'm disappointed in Obama's uh, economic team. Four yeah. of the same guys who oversaw these policies in Russia. Yeah. And that's another good point to bring up because we've had on uh, Bob Poland and Robert Shear. They've both been on today uh, talking about how they were upset about their uh, so about the Obama uh, selections as far as the economic team is con- are concerned. But neither one brought up that their role in uh, post-communist Russia and mass privatization, yeah. which led to uh, lower life expectancy levels. But it seems like – well, even when Dick Cheney uh, in the last year, he went over to Russia and he said that he – and he started waxing nostalgic about what he called the good old days of the 1990s. Which I'm sure did not go over well with the Russian people. And you, no. So there's these two different ways of bringing capitalism uh, into a country. One is this rapid mass privatization, also known as shock therapy. Naomi Klein calls it shock doctrine. Uh, and uh, there's also the gradual uh, institutionalist idea of just bringing it in, bringing in. Uh, uh, capitalism slowly. What yeah. does pursuing the radical shop therapy strategy, rather than the gradual implementation of capitalism, say to you about either Western or even Russian uh, leadership I- after the downfall of the Soviet Union? Well, uh, it was a tremendous failure of leadership uh, on in both places. Um, I mean, obviously, the the effects have been catastrophic and. Uh, you know, in in some countries like Poland and Hungary, uh, which kind of remain democratic, they initial they they did these kind of radical policies to begin with, but then they saw the effects of them and they started to moderate them. Uh, what happened in Russia is they started to see the effects of them, and then you know there came a time when they could have been moderated, and this is in 1993, and Yeltsin is you know the gov- the the Duma, the, the White House in Russia, is uh, the parliament is uh, revolting against Yeltsin, who they elected. And this is where the failure in the U.S. leadership comes in. Uh, it's Clinton, and he backs Yeltsin. And he encourages Yeltsin and allows Yeltsin to bomb his own parliament, uh, to push through shock therapy. So that was a colossal failure uh, of leadership both in Russia, uh, but at least, you know, some people in Russia... You could say half the people were resisting this, and there was this kind of a domestic stalemate. And then the West came in and uh, decisively tipped the balance of power. And this was extremely short-sighted. I mean, unless they were, unless there's a conspiracy and they wanted to completely destroy the Soviet, the Soviet industrial capacity, like uh, the Allies initially thought they would do with Germany after World War II, you know, this policy was incredibly short-sighted. It was pushed by the U.S. Treasury and with the, the same old cast of characters that are in there now, right, connected to Wall Street uh, and the U.S. Treasury. Um, uh, and, that you know, these companies, big investment firms, uh, the investment 
banks and some of the big insurance companies thought they would get a lot of business out of organizing these privatizations. They could issue the stocks. They could, they could run the privatizations. They even advocated that they would get to form management companies, which would uh, help run these companies after they privatized them. So, you know, they saw this as a great deal of uh, potential business. Um, and to me, that has to have been motivating uh, to some extent, these policies and why it would explain why Bill Clinton pushed them. Uh, but, you know, when Yeltsin died, Bill Clinton wrote a letter to the New York Times, uh, I think it was the Times, uh, you know, saying that Yeltsin did basically everything right, every choice he made, you know, when he basically did everything wrong. And this, I think, is, you know, one of the greatest failures of the Clinton presidency. It has to be the greatest failure uh, is his Russian policy. And uh, if you recall, Gore did the same thing. There was a story about Gore, about Gore uh, you know, not acknowledging Yeltsin when he was running for president. Right. Scribbled, right. you know, BS across some report. Remember, that this is all they've never acknowledged what Yeltsin did and the role that U.S. leadership had in that. And, you know, this this didn't only cause, you know, probably three million deaths. Right. It also it screwed up the economy. Uh, and it screwed up the political system, right? It, this is the death of democracy in Russia. I mean, people talk now about Putin being uh, not a Democrat, and that's certainly true, but Russia hasn't been particularly democratic since 1993. You know, once you're, once you're bombing your own parliament and then essentially <laughs> ruling by de- decree afterwards, uh, you know... That's a pretty good clue. <laughs> yeah, political scientists use the euphemism of super-presidentialism. You know, it's basically an electoral uh, authoritarian system. You know. So did did the did the rush to capitalism? Did the rapid mass privatization of post-Soviet Russia? Uh, did that then well doom the prospects for American-style capitalism and doom the so prospects and doom the uh, prospects for uh, democracy in Russia? I think so. I think that's absolutely correct. It's, this is a, exactly a case of the faster, the faster you try to get someplace, the farther it takes, longer it takes to get there. Yeah. And they may have permanently uh, destroyed their chance at actually a, a transition to Western-style capitalism and democracy uh, by these radical policies. And, and you mentioned in passing a uh, known association between democracy and life expectancy. Earlier we were discussing social capital and the amount you have invested yeah. and how that can help mitigate other negative factors on life expectancy caused by rapid mass tra- privatization. But as much as mass privatization is bad for citizenry, is mm-hmm. democracy good for you? And did or does the West send a mixed message when it exports both democracy and mass privatization? Well, is democracy indeed good for you is a, is a very good question. And, you know, when you do the statistics, all things being equal, in some circumstances, democratic governments are better than authoritarian governments. Um, and basically the argument is, you know, well, if it's really a democracy, people want health care, governments will pay more attention to the people when it's democratic. So there's some truth to that argument, but then, you know, you look at the at the public health uh, of countries compare, you know, the comparative evidence on public health, and it doesn't seem to have. It's certainly not a straightforward 
a relationship because you have a, a country like Cuba, which indeed has a a, a political, uh, you know, a totalitarian regime. They don't. There's no competitive politics in Cuba, uh, but their health care system and life expectancy is outstanding. Uh, and you know, the Russians, the Soviets made great gains in life expectancy. Um, they certainly didn't have the great, you know, the greatest system wasn't as good as in the West. Uh, but they eliminated infectious diseases, um, and they really kind of, you know, really lengthened life expectancy and kind of modernized uh, the health system. Um, so it's not at all so clear, you know, in terms of exporting democracy. I don't really know what you have in mind there, because uh, we haven't, in my mind, actually exported much democracy. You mean interventions which we legitimize by saying we're supporting democracy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean I, I, you're right. You're right, though. I mean, that isn't democracy. But I was just trying – because if yeah. we're telling these nations, look, we're bringing democracy, oh, and we're bringing mass privatization, it would seem that the mass privatization part would undermine any good feelings that you would have towards the democracy, and that well, might actually threaten democracy in the future. That's absolutely true. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. In Russia, and this is absolutely true, the Democrats – Right, were those people who were associated with the people who were doing these radical economic policies. So if you call somebody a Democrat in Russia, it's an insult, right? Because they think of people like Yeltsin. You mean right? Justin? <laughs> Justin Russia? It's only it's only an insult. Not, not just in Russia at all. It's throughout <laughs> most of the post-communist world, um, and you know, probably all sorts of places in Latin America. You know, this is a basic contradiction between, you know, the U.S. says they like. Uh, democracy uh, until the democracy doesn't do something that we like. <laughs> exactly. They have people elect, and then all of a sudden it's not democratic anymore. Um, but, you know, Bolivia, I'm in particular thinking of Bolivia uh, and Evo Morales, and, right. you know, his rise is not unrelated to uh, to Jeffrey Sachs's shock therapy that he implemented in Bolivia in, back in 1984. So in a way, a kind of, there's a, a relationship of both ways that he kind of created an anti-neoliberal revolution um, and gave birth to uh, the phenomena that brought Evo Morales to power. Thank you, Jeffrey um, Sachs, I guess. <laughs> yeah, ironically. Uh, L- Lawrence, one last question for you. We've been speaking with sociologist Larry King. He is co-author of Mass Privatization and the Post-Communist Mortality Crisis Across National Analysis, which appeared in the latest issue of The Lancet. Uh, we, uh, and, uh, we've been speaking with Larry uh, live from Cambridge in the UK. One last question for you, Larry, and it's our question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Sure. I think that the answer is going to be more scary than the question. Uh, rapid mass privatization, or as Naomi Klein has called it, uh, the shock doctrine, or as other people have called it, shock therapy, or as it is delineated in the book by Loretta Napoleone, also another past guest on our show, uh, in her book, uh, Rogue Economics. Uh, this is the kind of uh, scary mass privatization that happened. Rapid mass privatization happens very quickly, leads to unemployment, leads to a uh, drop in life expectancy, at least in the uh, model that was employed in post-Soviet Union Russia. Do you believe that the Obama administration, despite all the problems that shock therapy has shown, as you were just dating it back to 1984, Bolivia, up until 2002, post-Soviet Russia, do you believe that the Obama administration will employ shock therapy during their four or eight years in office? You know, this is a... 
that's a scary question, and I'm I'm hoping you know that all my senses are wrong. The fact that he has appointed the exact same cast of characters that led this in the past, you know, does not bode well. But I'm hoping against hope that it's a new circumstance, and even these people have realized uh, that they have had too much of a good thing, and that they're totally destabilizing the financial system, and how could they reap the rewards if it's totally chaotic, that maybe they need a new approach. But I wouldn't bet on it, and I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, it's good to hear that you're not gambling or holding your breath in Cambridge today. Uh, Larry, this is an amazing article, and uh, I want to also thank you for accidentally sending me Naomi Klein's uh, personal email address. That helps oh, me out in booking her next week. <laughs> I won't tell her. Just uh, And by the way, give mine out to whoever you want to. I don't really okay. care. Larry, okay, Larry, I really appreciate you being on the show. This uh, is a fantastic pleasure. study. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Producer Alex. Chuck is out this week with back problems. We are running a clip show. We should be live next week. Fingers crossed. Good morning, Peter. Good evening in London. Uh, good, good morning, Strike Evening. How are you doing? Uh, great. It's great to have you on the show. Something broke yesterday, and I just wanted to make, get your thoughts on it. Yesterday, former Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemtsov was shot and killed. He was to appear at an anti-war march Sunday in Moscow against the war in Ukraine. To you, what does this say, or does it say anything to you, about uh, Vladimir Putin and his control of Russia? Well, um... I mean, one way of, of looking at Nemtsov's um, incredibly tragic and sad uh, death, um, obviously we don't really have anything firm at the moment, is that he was sort of killed by propaganda. Um, the sort of, um, uh, I mean, you've got to understand, there have been sort of posters uh, hung by sort of Kremlin, pro-Kremlin youth groups from, the, from major buildings with his face on it saying, this man is a national traitor. Um, you know, he's in every... Uh, sort of a movie of hate uh, on on Russian on Russian sort of pseudo news, uh, saying that he's a CIA agent, a Satanist Mason, whatever, um, out to destroy the spiritual foundations of Russia. So he's a constant target of of um, of a massive hate campaign, and we I don't know if we'll ever know who actually killed him. Like a lot of these political murders, they they remain a mystery because people who do them tend to be, you know, set other people up. Um, who are the eventual kind of official killers, but um, uh, but 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 maybe that's one way of looking at it. I mean, it's kind of it's both shocking and yet somehow utterly unsurprising. Right, and it, your book is about the media experience that you had while you were in Russia. You, as you write, I was in demand in the new Moscow for the simple reason that I could say the magic words, I am from London. They worked like uh, open sesame. Russians are convinced Londoners know the al- alchemical uh, secret of successful television, can distill the next hit reality or talent show, no matter what I had, uh, that I'd never been more than a third-rate assistant on other people's projects just by whis- whispering, I I come from London, could get me any meeting I wanted. I was a stowaway on the great armada of Western civilization. The bankers, lawyers, international development consultants, uh, accountants, and architects who have sailed out to seek their fortune in the adventures of globalization. What does their uh, admiration, their awe, what does that Russian awe of London, and London in particular, reveal to us about the new Russia? And does Paris and New York and Berlin and Rome have that kind of same cachet? 
Well, L- London plays a very interesting place in the Russian imagination. If we're talking about TV, it's a very practical thing. I mean, uh, London is sort of the home of, of, of sort of, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a capital of, t- of, of TV making, um, especially the kind of sort of like factual reality shows that, that I was working on. Just most formats are invented in London. Um, uh, so, so, so London's are very good at that. So London lawyers are very good at their media. People are very good. I mean, America's better for, for other professions. But, um, uh, but there is also a, sort of a deeper sort of psychological um, uh, addiction uh, of Russia to London. Uh, I don't know how many of your listeners um, have ever heard of Anton Chekhov's play Three Sisters, but it's this great Russian 19th century play where Three provincial sisters are constantly going. We'll go to Moscow, to Moscow. Nowadays, sort of every middle class Russian goes. I'll go to London, to London. It's sort of. It doesn't matter whether you're pro-Putin or anti-Putin. You want to send your kids to school in London. You want to have a house in London. Uh, it's it's like the, the where the, the sort of the, the the odd paradise where Russians project project their their ideal place. There's lots of reasons for that. One of them. Uh, and again, one connected to TV, as that's what we're talking about today. So around the 1970s, when Russian TV, Soviet TV, gets going properly, uh, they start to make their first big um, dramas, TV dramas. And you've got to say, the late 1970s in the Soviet Union, people have already become utterly sort of, um, you know, no one believes in communism anymore. I mean, it's, 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 it's a joke. Uh, people just kind of like don't know how to get rid of it, but they kind of live. Uh, it's sort of the utopian bit of, of communism has certainly gone away. And um, Russians are looking for some way to sort of get in, get in touch with their past, the past they, were, they lost, the aristocratic past. Uh, obviously, they can't, you know, they can't make shows about nice uh, Russian aristocrats because the official ideology is to hate uh, the Russian aristocracy and to glorify the proletarian revolution. So this is the funny thing. In the 1970s, Russians start making nonstop TV shows about the English 19th century. So the Forsyth saga, um, uh, Three Men in a Boat, uh, the best Sherlock Holmes ever. And it's almost as if they played out a fantasy of the history they'd lost through the English. And now they can still go to London uh, to sort of come in contact with a, a Russian history they lost. Uh, then of course, it has, you know, it's, it's a very sort of fantasized London that, 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 that they indulge in. But, but that's one of the ways to look at this kind of uh, odd relationship. You write about the amazing size of Russia, covering nine time zones and going from the Arctic to Central Asian deserts, writing, TV is the only force that can unify and rule and bind this country. It's the central mechanism of a new type of authoritarianism, one far subtler than the 20th century strains. You were saying how people look at communism as a failure, as a joke, as part of the past. But it, you know, I've always heard that there is a nostalgia within and it, uh, with, within Russia, uh, not for communism, but maybe for that kind of structure or author- authoritarian rule. It, it, does that explain the embrace of Vladimir Putin, that there is this nostalgia maybe for stability? Well, that's certainly what they. That's certainly very much what they played on. So, um, uh, but it's actually not even so much. I mean, the, the terms that are always used, uh, and there. I mean, it's very hard to understand where, where there's a top-down yearning and where that yearning is kind of like forced through by incredibly efficient and coordinated propaganda. But there's several kind of things that the the propaganda dwells on. One of them is the idea of we need a strong hand. Uh, it's always very kind of like you know physical. We need a strong hand. Our country needs a strong hand. Without a strong hand, we can't. We can't 
cope. Um, and so this, this works in the propaganda in various ways. So let's say Soviet propaganda would basically be a lie about how great the Soviet Union was, and people would be like, hold on, but it's awful. So there was this divide between people and propaganda. Now, let's say one of the many sort of funny moves that counterintuitive moves that contemporary Russian propaganda does, one of the biggest channels is, is NTV, and nonstop it shows how awful life in Russia is. Murders, uh, corruption in the provinces, uh, uh, economic collapse, with the underlying message, we need a strong hand, we need a strong Kremlin to bring our country together. Um, so, to what extent it's a top-up, you know, it's a bottom-up thing, or to what extent, you know, Putin has managed to sort of uh, 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 create this mythology that, that the country needs uh, a strong authoritarian ruler, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a complicated thing to explore. Um, certainly they do dwell on that. And that shows how fear sells. Here in the U.S., fear sells as well. I know that it's not the same kind of situation where Vladimir Putin has essentially taken over the media, uh, that there isn't that much uh, alternative media within Russia. But it does reflect that same thing that sells here in the United States, that fear sells here in the United States. And I'm not too sure. I don't watch that much British news. I try to catch the BBC on a regular basis, but I don't see that much British news uh, or uh, commentary shows. How much? Uh, how would you compare the way that fear sells in Russia to the way that fear sells in the West? Listen, human emotions are the same everywhere. You know, this is not a new thing. It really is all about the system. I mean, imagine all you had was Fox News. That's all you had. There was no NBC, ABC, CBS. There was nothing of that. There was just 24-hour Fox News uh, on all the channels from all the angles. Um, and anyone who tried to sort of oppose it ended up shot. So it really is about, you know, media is about having you know, different voices which aren't, you know, in, in opposition to each other. Where, what's subtler about the Russian system is that, you know, everything is stripped by the Kremlin every week. The top TV channels meet uh, in, you know, the heads of top TV channels meet, meet inside the Kremlin and they're given sort of the script for the week, who's, you know, which stories they're meant to cover, how they're meant to cover them, who's allowed on TV, who isn't allowed on TV, and much more subtler, which kind of more sort of psychological uh, buttons they're meant to be pressing, you know, whether it's trauma from the Second World War, trauma from the 90s. This is done in a very coordinated way from TV through print and all the way down to social media. So it really is all about, you know, structures of control. Um, that's, that's really the key thing. Uh, we, one could take pretty much any sort of like... Uh, um, uh, a move that Russian propagandists use, um, and and you could you know trace it back to something in the West. But the whole point is that that it is all centralised, and that's what and, and focused, and that's what makes it qualitatively different. Um, however, I mean it's very interesting to look at some of the ways they've developed since the Soviet times. So in Soviet times, if it was all about you know you just had communists on screen. Now they play a much more subtle game. So you will have like a puppet opposition on screen. So I mean, the classic thing is to have a, um, a crazy right wing political party and a crazy left wing political party. They have these very lively debating shows. And Putin's party looks kind of sensible and normal by contrast. So, so, so they play a much more kind of um, uh, sort of uh, subtle and sophisticated game. Do how much do you think Russians are aware of this propaganda? Do they know that they are being misinformed, that they're being misled? And they're like, ah, of course, you know, just like here in the U.S., all media lies, all politicians lie. Is it that kind of acceptance? Yeah, actually, it's, I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is, um, uh, another great deviation from the current propaganda compared to the communist ones. So this is a co- the Russian propaganda kind of plays on cynicism a lot. So, for example, uh, everyone knows that elections are faked. Yeah, everyone knows that they're a joke. 
Um, everyone knows that Putin will win. You know, there's, there's not much excitement before an election. Everyone knows the opposition is one is nominated by the Kremlin. However, and, and the Kremlin kind of does this openly, kind of fakes elections fairly openly, and is kind of quite proud of this. But the point is to sort of intimidate people. Like, we can fake, we can do any number we want, we can fake anything we want, just accept it and move on. Um, for a long time, no one cared about politics in Russia. Um, and, and this was kind of the deal the Kremlin had. Like, everything's going to be fake. The news is fake. Um, the elections are fake. However, you can go off and make a lot of money if you're as corrupt as the system wants you to be. And people kind of accepted that game. And they, I mean, it's very funny. Whenever a genuine political opposition to Putin starts to emerge through social media or through any kind of you know, bottom-up um, uh, bottom uh, movement, the first thing the Kremlin does is leak a story that actually the Kremlin is running them. So it's always to sort of like, uh, you know, don't believe in anything, everyone's for sale, everything's controlled by us, you know, there's nothing to see here, people move away. Um, and, and that's very interesting, that, but that doesn't mean people can't, just because they're sort of critically and intellectually um, uh, sort of aware that they're being lighted, doesn't mean they can't be emotionally manipulated. So Kremlin TV isn't just about news. Kremlin TV is nonstop sort of uh, talk shows and documentaries about conspiracies. Conspiracies everywhere. You know, the CIA are out to get us. Um, the Masons are out to get us. The uh, um, uh, and also sort of about scientific things. You know, there's deadly fungi who are out to destroy Russia. Um, so uh, this is the funny thing: when people don't believe in anything, when they're very cynical about everything, they're actually incredibly easy to manipulate. Um, uh, so so they can be persuaded that yes, our leaders are corrupt and our politics is fake, but there is a hidden hand somewhere manipulating everything. So they play on this sort of cynicism which leads to conspiracies, and conspiracies are the main kind of uh, mode of pseudo-explanation on, on Russian TV for, for anything. So let's say the Ukrainian revolution, they're like, you know, they play on that cynicism very hard. They're like, obviously you realize, you know, they say on TV that, you know, a bunch of Ukrainians couldn't have staged a revolution. That's ridiculous. It must have been the evil CIA. Um, so, so uh, this is the funny thing. The cynical, world-weary viewer is actually incredibly easy to manipulate. And there's some great uh, research uh, by Northeastern, Northeastern University showing how this is about the West. How people who don't believe in mainstream media are the most easy, uh, are the most uh, likely to swallow disinformation. Um, so uh, there's a bit of a paradox there. But um, there you go. We are speaking to TV producer Peter Pomerantsev, uh, live from London. He is the author of Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, the surreal heart of the new Russia. Peter is an award-winning contributor to the London Review of Books. You know, when I was reading your book, because of my frame of reference, being U.S. media, I couldn't help myself but laugh at certain times, not because I'm laughing at your content, but laughing at the the parallels here that we have in the U.S. And as you were pointing out how it's very different because it's one centralized thing, I started thinking because we have the History Channel here in the United States that often focuses on, you know, UFOs and aliens and ghosts and Hitler and all these different weird conspiracy things. Like, we we have... That option, if you want to be distracted, just like the Russian people are distracted by conspiracy theories, you have that option. All you have to do is subscribe to the History Channel. And there's other stations like that. But I just couldn't help but think about that when I was reading your book. And you quote someone you describe as one of the most famous political presenters in Russia saying, we all know there will be no real politics on TV in Russia, but under Putin. But we still have to give our viewers the sense something is happening. They need to be kept entertained. So what should we play with? Shall we attack oligarchs? Then he continues, who's the enemy this week? Politics has, to, got, has got to feel like a movie. 
cynicism aside, did that kind of honesty surprise you? And when you write about how journalists don't mind giving up the journalism side, or TV producers don't mind giving up journalism for entertainment, did that kind of surprise you how quick how quickly people were willing to acquiesce to the Putin regime? Um, it was, to be honest, you know, maybe... Maybe I'm, maybe because uh, maybe I'm naive, sort of like you know, person who still believes in sort of like sort of the core principles of democratic liberalism. I, I, I still find it shocking. So recently, the um, um, the deputy minister for communications, so the deputy minister for sort of press and TV, um, he was asked like, how much? How come there's so much you know disinformation on Russian TV? I mean, there's well, during the things have sort of reached a new pitch during the Ukraine crisis. So uh, the news is now it's it's it's, it's just basically fictionalized in the sense that um, there are stories about um, sort of uh, Ukrainian soldiers uh, crucifying uh, a Russian child. Uh, there was a story, you know, about, um, uh, about how Ukrainians give sort of drugs to kids who go out and then sort of shoot Russians. And you know, stuff basically taken from the movies and just put on, put on during the news. I mean, on the news, not, not a sort of like, you know, uh, dramatizations. And, and so the, the minister responsible was, was asked about it. He said, look, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. All that matters is that our ratings are high. People enjoy the way we present this, and that's all that matters. And it's the thing that people keep on going back to Russia, that facts don't exist, truth doesn't exist as a concept. Uh, so therefore, why don't we just make stuff up? I mean, it's all about who can be more emotive, um, who can be more kind of um, uh, 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 entertaining and, 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 and gruesome. Um, uh, and that's, I, mean, I still find that very, very shocking. I mean, the obvious parallel in America is Karl Rove's legendary quote about, uh, you know, people in power not needing to sort of, you know, we, you know, he, he once told the New York Times in an interview that sort of uh, people in power could create new realities and the little people on the ground just chase their realities, trying to decode them, and then they create new realities. So this is clearly uh, an international kind of uh, uh, a phenomenon, uh, and we could look at various reflections of this in different parts of the world. Uh, in Russia, it's just taken it a little bit further and pushed the envelope a little bit further than anywhere else that I've encountered. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, maybe there's a philosophical uh, issue uh, here uh, about kind of a, a movement away. I don't know if, how many of you listeners are sort of, uh, sort of um, uh, familiar with some sort of postmodern philosophy that has been very fashionable over the last sort of 50 years, which sort of tries to also argue there is no such thing as truth, there are no such things as facts, or reality, the social construct, construct etc., etc. But now we see how these ideas are kind of finding their way into everyday politics, and it's actually quite frightening. We, we seem to be sort of a, we, we might be facing global kind of deluge of disinformation, and uh, the information age might well turn out to be the disinformation age. Uh, so in that sense, and, and my book's very much about that, Russia might be sort of a, the avant-garde of a very, very dark future. Right. That is the really frightening part of your book and incredibly fascinating. And Peter, I just want to stress that again. I found your book really, really fascinating, and especially when I can look at that, as you were just saying, and all of a sudden it makes sense that when I was watching Fox Fox News a couple of months ago, uh, they had their commentators on their program saying how much they would much rather have a leader like Vladimir Putin than have Barack Obama. I mean, it totally fit in with the narrative of your book. Now, this week, a website called 
titled Ukraine Today published this. A Russian newspaper has leaked what it's called a Kremlin policy document that details Russia's takeover of Ukraine. Now, I'm going to pronounce this horribly, but Novaya Gazeta has leaked the document, which it says has uh, was written by policy officials inside the Kremlin in the period between February 4th and 12th last year, just before the Euromaidan massacre and before the former uh, president fled Ukraine. The document lists Russia's takeover of Crimea, the need for a Russian PR campaign to win hearts and minds, and calls for a referendum in eastern Ukraine to give the appearance of legitimacy. Unlike much of Russian media, which is controlled by the Kremlin, Novaya Gazeta has a reputation for being independent and critical of the Kremlin. Since 2001, six of its journalists from the newspaper have been murdered. Last year, Novaya Gazeta was targeted by the Kremlin for publishing an expose on Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. So what degree is there any kind of independent media in in Russia, and how popular is it? Well, um, there is, um, so so on TV, nothing. TV is very, very sperm controlled. So the idea has always been to allow, to not, I mean, the Kremlin has always tried to not drive dissenting voices underground, but to co-opt them and give them a tiny and utterly pointless platform through which to speak. So Nova Gazeta, which is a tiny uh, print run, is allowed its tiny little sort of like newspaper um, uh, sort of corner of the space. Uh, there's a radio station, Echo Moskva, which is actually put, has a lot of pressure put on it, but it's allowed to exist in a, in a, in a little corner as well. So, 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 so they like to give the liberals their little spaces, but then frame them in a, in a very sort of way that's very convenient to the Kremlin. So, for example, one of the biggest publications, one of the biggest, I mean, relatively speaking, very small, but um, uh, publication something called Snob Magazine, which is, was the Russian version of The New Yorker, uh, which is kind of a, a Kremlin-approved liberal project because... The way it sort of packaged its its um, criticism of the Kremlin, it would never touch corruption or anything. Uh, it would just do sort of broad, sort of liberal critiques of Putin, while at the same time having a lot of stuff about lifestyle, which was very quite elitist, uh, you know, quite westernized. And so it was very easy for the Kremlin to go, ah ha ha, look at these liberals. You know, they're not like ordinary Russians. They're they're you know they're interested in their wine and 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 whatever and and skiing holidays. And the guy who sponsored it was Mikhail Prokhorov, who's a very flamboyant oligarch who then went on to become these Kremlin-sanctioned uh, liberal candidate and got like 10% in the presidential election. So what they try to do is, is let the liberals have a very, very, very small space, not get onto TV, which is, which is the medium that really matters, uh, and then keep them sort of boxed in there. When somebody does become dangerous, like Alexei Navalny, the protest leader who, who despite not being allowed on TV, goes sort of 30% or something at the, uh, in the Moscow mayor elections, then very quickly they'll have a sort of a case opened against them uh, and... Uh, and they'll find themselves in legal trouble. So, so see, if someone does, if, if, if a real threat were to uh, emerge, they stamp down on it. But the tactic so far has been to co-opt, contain, and manipulate. Uh, and it's been fairly effective. Uh, you write how we saw a similar dynamic of work on the international stage in the final days of August when an apparent Russian military incursion into Ukraine, and a relatively minor one at that, was made to feel momentously threatening. Putin invoked the need for talks on the statehood of southeastern Ukraine with language that seemed almost purposely ambiguous, and uh, leaving uh, NATO stunned and Kiev intimidated enough to agree to a ceasefire. Once again, the term Novorossiya, 
uh, the new Russia, that's the area within Ukraine, made its way into Putin's remarks, creating the sense that large territories were ready to secede from Ukraine, when in reality the insurgents only held a sliver of land. So how much is the Ukraine war? How much is that a result of Russian propaganda? Well, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, virtually all of it. I mean, it's, it's the war hallucinated into reality in the very coherent words of whoever writes the big economist pieces every week. Um, but, um, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, it's actually fairly incredible what, what, what they managed to do. I mean, I mean, we have to understand, people going on, keep on going on about sort of like, you know, the civil war in Ukraine was somehow never, so this is rubbish. They've been living in one country for 20 years with no conflict. Um, the Donbass, which is the, which is the place that sort of rebelled, um, uh, was always the Yanukovych heartland, but they always managed to kind of like strike some sort of deal with Kiev. I mean, there was no violence for 20 years and no hints of violence for 20 years. And then, you know, during Maidan, the Kremlin starts this incredible Incredible um, propaganda campaign. Really, um, I mean, it's, uh, uh, really sort of, it really doesn't matter what the reality they're talking about is. I mean, it's 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 utterly contradictory a lot of the time. It's uh, Ukraine doesn't really exist. Ukraine is full of fascists. You know, it's but 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 emotionally, it's just scare stories and nightmares. And it doesn't really matter that that that, that people can't coherently explain why. They're, they're taking up arms and, and, and starting a war, but emotionally they've been inspired to do so, uh, just about the enemy. Um, and, and yeah, you, you see people taking up arms, uh, and, and you see people come down from Russia convinced that they're fighting the great CIA Masonic, um, whatever Zionist threat in Ukraine. Um, and um, uh, it, it's, it's quite stunning. And at one point that starts to become a reality because the Ukrainians you know, have to push back, they start bombing, you know, once the bombs start flying, they sort of, you know, that's it really, then, then the, then, then, then the hallucinated reality becomes real because, you know, instant people start dying and, and, and people have, you know, people's reasons for war become a lot more real in that sense. But it's, it's absolutely incredible. In fact, I mean, they did it so quickly. They did it in a period of sort of six months or so just by, you know, starting one of the most vicious propaganda campaigns in history. Um, and that, that, that really is stunning. Um, I mean, in many ways, the Kremlin propaganda works a lot like I mean, the way it's working now during the war, war period is, is a lot like a cult work. So there's nonstop conspiracies sort of to break down critical thinking, uh, false assurances, um, uh, which is a sort of a form of linguistic trick that sort of uh, connects things up in a false way, uh, followed by sort of itching away at sort of emotional traumas, uh, sort of the humiliations of the 1990s. The Second World War is raised all the time, that, that the West is attacking us just like they did during the Second World War. And then at the end, the sort of like, you know, the, the glorious appearance of Putin and military victories, you know, to, to, to inspire kind of, um, you know, uh, some sort of emotional erection. Um, so, so it's starting to operate like a cult. Um, and, and much like with a cult, you know, I don't know if you've ever had friends who've got in a cult, you know, like, I don't believe this is happening to a normal person. They suddenly believe in, you know, that, that, that's, you know, some, 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 some freak in, in, in California as the Messiah. Um, uh, something quite similar is, is, is happening, a very similar te- te- techniques are being used. Um, and it's, it's petrifying because it's completely unclear about what, what the end result of all this is going to be. Yeah, it's really petrifying, especially when, as you were pointing out before, this kind of uh, that we're in this <laughs> disinformation age, because here in and I, I, again, I'm not saying that they are the exact same, but here in the U.S., the way in which the Ukraine war is being 
delivered, dis- uh, disseminated uh, by our media, and I'm talking again, focusing on TV news media, is that the United States and the West have done absolutely nothing at all to provoke this, that this is just, and this is a big problem, I think, in, in any uh, coverage, that this is just Vladimir Putin being crazy. We had a story uh, earlier this month about how uh, the United States believes that he may be uh, suffering from Asperger's, and that is uh, what causes his the way in which he thinks, that there is no provocation from the U.S., that this is just Russia being uh, incredibly provocative and the United States or the West not being provocative. This week, the uh, CNN uh, was covering a, pro- a very provocative move that a Russian jet did against a, a Western jet. But on the other hand, there wasn't any reporting in, the, in CNN about how uh, some armored personnel carriers with American flags were being paraded in Estonia near the uh, border of Russia. So my fear is the disinformation coming from both sides and that we can't find out exactly what is really happening to the people on the ground in Ukraine. Oh, listen, you, you, I mean, I don't know what TV channels you watch. I mean, if you want to put yourself into a false reality and, uh, and, and, and watch the wackier channels in the U.S., then, then you can do that, and that's a real problem in the U.S., because you appear to be having a society which is sort of dividing up into various realities with no sort of desire to find a, a central reality-based discourse in which to have a reality-based politics. But right. no, the reporting about Ukraine is very, very, very good, uh, both in print and what I've seen sort of, uh, I mean, the CBs, the the NBC stuff that I've been watching was very, very good. Um, uh, um, I, I don't understand the point you just made about uh, troops in Estonia. The Estonians and the Latvians have been crying out for some sort of show of strength and protection because they think they're next. Um, the main thing, actually, the main uh, uh, the main thing that is not understood in America is that, uh, just in the political analysis, is that uh, Putin is at war with America. They seem to think this is a regional conflict. This is sort of, you know, Putin's vision of the future and his new... Well, the Russians call information psychological war with America. Um, so I don't think there's any understanding in America that this is kind of about them, um, and he's looking for a fight with you, rather than Ukraine is just sort of the platform through which he's, he, he can play out some of that. But um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't watch much Fox. So I suppose if one were to watch <laughs> Fox for 24 hours, one would go a bit mad. But the stuff I saw on you know NBC and the other big networks I thought was, was excellent and very brave. People are reporting right from Donetsk. So you really have to try pretty damn hard if you want to be disinformed. Maybe some people want to be disinformed. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Uh, you're right. This is even uh, before. Uh, well, let me get back back to this other part. Um, so, is it similar to the way in which the most extreme, the way in which uh, TV is being? Uh, let's see. You're right. More than a decade later, that movie is increasingly dark and disturbing. The first thing Russian militias do when they take a town in East Ukraine is seize the television towers and switch them over to Kremlin channels. Uh, soon after, the locals begin to rant about fascists in Kiev and dark U.S. plots to purge Russian speakers from East, Eastern Ukraine. It's not just what they say about but how they say it that is so disturbing. Irrational spirals of paranoia, theories so elaborate and illogical, one can't possibly argue with them. I mean, this sounds so much like uh, 9-11 conspiracy theories. Does it all sound like the ravings of the most extreme conspiracy theorists with lots of information that cannot be proven, and I stress, proven wrong? Yeah, 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 and they use lots of the sort of, um, so Alex, they, I mean, I can't remember, did they have Alex Jones on TV on Rush Today all the time? Yes, they, they do. They use a lot of these guys, and like, like a lot of the conspiracy American guys, they, they love 
sort of the, the, the international Russian TV, and they're on there all the time. Uh, so yeah, they do that. I mean, they do a lot of that. Um, uh, but imagine that's all there was, you know. And, and imagine there was no sort of normal, sort of boring. I mean, you realize how great boring CBS is, you know, after that, um, you know, or the boring BBC, or the sort of like you know ridiculously slow, patient collection of facts and rather sort of like squarish discussion. Um, you kind of realize just how how much we need it. Uh, but yeah, imagine imagine like Dimitri Kisilov, the Russian propagandist in chief. I mean, imagine Alex Jones was, um, you know, your the, running your TV, your national TV uh, uh, stations, all of them at the same time. Then you kind of you kind of get where the sort of world we're talking about. But I mean, in terms of techniques, like all the, the propaganda techniques are Russian. Propaganda techniques are have been developed over centuries in different countries. I mean, one of if you're looking for the for the American angle, I mean, the, you know, the 1918 campaign to get America into the First World War is still taken as the sort of like the the high watermark and birthplace of a, a lot of techniques of, of mass propaganda, uh, including the use of disinformation. I mean, that's why Walter Lippmann wrote Public Opinion, to sort of counteract that. But, but the point with Western societies is, is, that, is that even if we ever sort of get into these holes of propaganda, we then try to climb out of them, while um, in Russia there don't seem to be any signs of climbing out at all. Uh, if anything, it's being sort of put on crack. Uh, one last question for you, Peter. I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning because this is fast, mm-hmm. fascinating stuff because uh, you just don't read this anywhere else. Um, one last question for you. We have been speaking to TV producer Peter Pomerantsev. He is the author of Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, The Surreal Heart of the New Russia. He's an award-winning contributor to the London Review of Books. He has also worked as a consultant for the EU and for think tanks on projects covering the former Soviet Union. Uh, last question that we ask each and one of our uh, guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. What do you fear, what do you think is a greater threat to Europe? Real, actual weaponization by Russia and an actual invasion, or weaponization of information wherein an invasion isn't even necessary? Yeah, I mean, it's the latter. This is the whole... um um, uh, so Russian, actually also Chinese military theory is really into this idea of um, how you can bring a country to its knees without ever using troops, without ever using official troops. So can you do it through sort of economic, combination of economic warfare, information warfare, a little bit of terrorism, uh, but just without ever touching it? Uh, destroying it, um, and and actually, when you talk to people in the Baltics, it's very. I mean, I'm sure they're very glad that the that, that Brits and the Americans sort of you know, um, uh, you know, sort of reminded everyone that Estonia was a part of NATO last week. But NATO can't deal with any of this. NATO would, you know, we assume win a, a, a regular military war. But um, uh, Russian military theorists are, are totally aware of this, and Putin hasn't gone mad at all. He's just a very, very naughty boy. Um, uh, he's utterly rational in, in, in the way he, in his worldview, he's utterly rational. Um, uh, so yes, the danger is can they, can they kind of uh, bring in Estonia or Latvia or, or Bulgaria uh, to their knees without ever actually invading? And that's, uh, there's a lot of Russian military theory about this, whether it could work in practice. I don't know, but but there um the, this is very much part of this idea of a kind of that we're entering a world in the information age. We just thought oh it's great that would just be YouTube and and Twitter and all these you know funny things and 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 uh, you know no dictator could get ever get away with anything again. But actually authoritarian rulers have worked out that they can use the information age uh, for new forms of warfare, and that's um 
uh, we're only just kind of entering a century that's going to be full of these sort of wars of pure perception. I mean, the, the Russian military theory states this openly, says that the future of war is wars of pure perception for, uh, purely through psychological means and cyber and in cyberspace. Um, so uh, we're going to have to be on our toes. And the role of journalists is going to be very important. I think journalism will see actually a revival in this century as we begin to understand sort of this new level of information and propaganda manipulation that's, that's happening really just because of you know technological advances peter there's one question i still have to ask you before you go and i mm. apologize for going a little bit long here but no, no, it's fine. Uh, uh that is that uh both uh leaders within uk foreign policy as well as u.s foreign policy have suggested in security and defense have suggested over the past month that uh the islamic state and you know he, here in the U.S., the Islamic State is the scariest thing that we've been packaging, that the media has been packaging to us for a very mm. long time. But both in the U.K. and the U.S., leaders have said that uh, the Islamic State is as much of a threat. Uh, it, they made the, put it in the same kind of axis of evil with Russia. Is uh, Russia as much of a threat to Europe as the Islamic State? Well, it's obviously very, very different. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, obviously Russia is much more of a, of a serious threat because this is a huge nuclear-armed superpower that, um, you know, if, if it wants a war, it's, it can make, you know, a lot of a, a lot more trouble. The Islamic State's an odd one. I mean, again, Islamic State, like Russia, it's very interesting to look at them. I mean, I'm not very interested in these axes of evil, but um, uh, it is interesting to look at that they're both pushing the envelope on propaganda. Uh, I mean, ISIS are kind of coming from the other side. Uh, ISIS are augmenting this size and uh, their size and relevance uh, through propaganda, while Russia often tries to disguise it. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a funny one, ISIS. I mean, uh, would we be even thinking about being involved if they hadn't made those videos? It's the, it's the videos, the snuff movies that they've made, yeah. which have kind of provoked our involvement. I mean, what, another collapsed Middle Eastern state? I mean, knowing Obama's sort of like, you know, desire to keep his hands out of any kind of foreign policy, then um, uh, he probably wouldn't be doing anything. So it really is uh, a case of people, ISIS, using uh, propaganda uh, so well that um, they force a response. I mean, my friends who are experts in radicalization say most of the videos are actually aimed at sort of the Sunni heartlands. The amount of people coming from the West is actually quite small. But um, uh, so, so to really understand the dynamic, we have to look at the Middle East. But um, uh, so therefore, it's not necessarily a direct threat to you know Europe. But um, in terms of what I'm interested in, which is which is propaganda, I'm now doing a project at uh, at a think tank looking at 21st century propaganda. Um, it's they're definitely. I mean, they've clearly reinvented the game the way Putin is reinventing the propaganda game as well. And Peter, I promise to share all of my profits from bumper sticker sales of my bumper sticker that will say "Welcome to the Age of Disinformation" with you. Every penny I make, yeah, yeah, I will split yeah. with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank we've you. Got, yeah, we've got we've got to get our five percent from the. Uh, <laughs> From the chaos, huh? Yeah. Be war profiteers. Yeah. Thank you very right, much, then. Peter. I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. Uh, good luck with your book, and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend in London. All right, then. Bye. Thank you. Hi, it's Producer Alex. Chuck is out this week with back problems. We are running a clip show. We should be live next week. Fingers crossed. Russia is on the attack, threatening the very democracy we hold dear here in the U.S. of A., or not, maybe instead of being an existential threat, they're just playing the role of scapegoat that they have so many times in the not-so-recent past. Here to help us 
figure out how much of the Russian threat is inflated on how much that threat they need needs to be deflated. Live from Houston, of all places, Andrew Coburn wrote the December cover article for Harper's Magazine, The New Red Scare Reviving the Art of Threat Inflation. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Andrew. Hey, Chuck. Great to be with you. Always great to hear your voice, sir. Andrew is Washington editor of Harper's Magazine. He also had a new article this week at Counterpunch, and his most recently uh, his most recent book is last year's Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. If you go to our website and you click on Andrew's name, you can find all the interviews that we've done with him, including our interview with him from last year when he discussed Kill Chain. This is his third appearance on This Is Hell this year, more than any other guest. So congratulations for that. I don't know if I should congratulate yeah. you or apologize for having you on so many Times. No, no, the first. So yeah. while, while you believe Putin certainly could have been behind any kind of hacking of the U.S. election, you also see an eagerness for those in the U.S. to make Russia into some kind of boogeyman. How much do we risk underestimating Putin and underestimating Russia's power and their willingness to impose their, that power and their will upon others when we reconsider the level to which Russia is a threat to the United States? Is it Best to be cautious, or does this kind of caution actually provoke and promote confrontation? Well, I think it's very dangerous to exaggerate it, which is what we're doing now. Um, you know, this is this is go back a long way. It's an old habit for us. I mean, we were, you know, as I said in the article, right after World War II, when Russia was completely devastated by the by the war, and they'd lost twenty to thirty million people dead, uh, and the you know, the, you know, the army was like dragging itself around with horsepower, I mean, literally horsepower, uh, most of it. We said that Russia was so strong and mighty, it could occupy us, you know, at any time, could certainly invade and take over Western Europe. So this, you know, this, this, this is an old habit for us. That's why I call it reviving the art of threat inflation. We inflated the threat of Russia for years and years and years to justify spending, you know, untold billions of dollars on, on, on the military. And then that kind of went away a bit when the Soviet Union fell apart and communism went away. But now it's back. And, you know, once again, we're saying not only do the Russians, you know, have forces to invade Western Europe and the same old garbage thing, but they thought of a new wrinkle. Not only that, but the Russians, through their fiendish cyber cunning, have actually have changed the course of U.S. politics and elected Donald Trump. I mean, it's completely insane. And... To my astonishment, I have to say, the whole U.S. media has bought on, and everyone's firming at the mouth at the way Vladimir Putin supposedly hacked the U.S. election, which is, I've got to say, complete nonsense. Do we? Ju- does the United States government justify the, in, as you say, the inflated threat that is Russia? Do is that justified when you consider maybe it's it, we're not seeing Russia as a threat to us. We're seeing Russia as a threat to the rest of the world, and we are by proxy defending the rest of the world. Is, is Russia a threat to the rest of the world? Maybe not the United States. And what the United States is concerned about is that threat to the rest of the world. Well, if so, I've seen the very little sign of it. Um, they, uh, yes, they did. Um, you know, they did occupy, uh, take over part of Ukraine, the Crimea, which you know they considered was theirs anyway, um, and certainly you know was theirs for hundreds of years, uh, inhabited by people, mostly inhabited by people who 
wanted to be part of Russia, uh, according to the election they had, and they certainly have been supporting, you know, rebels in eastern Ukraine. But this, you know, no one, you could not argue that this wasn't, you know, something close to Russia that really, you know, was part of their, what they considered their home territory. I don't, you know, excuse it. Well, I can certainly understand it. But the notion that they're a threat to, you know, to Germany, to, you know, France, to England or, you know, anywhere else, um, I think, you know, again, there's been no sign of it. You know, we hear a lot that they're going to, you know, once again occupy the, the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Estonia and uh, Latvia. Again, you know, we've seen very little sign of that. It's just all, as I call it, an inflated threat. Um, yes, they've intervened in Syria at the request of the Syrian government, um, you know, and fighting against what we have been at war with, you know, Al-Qaeda. They, they joined the global war on terror. Again, you might say, well, we shouldn't have any wars at all. But again, you know, it's pretty easy to understand that. So, no, I, Chuck, you, my, my answer is no, they're not a threat to the rest of the world. The Guardian reported this week on the Russian hacking allegation, quote, the Kremlin has rejected the hacking accusations, while the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, has previously said that the DNC leaks were not linked to Russia. Second senior official cited by the Washington Post conceded that intelligence agencies did not have specific proof that the Kremlin was directing the hackers who were said to be one step removed from the Russian government. Uh, And then the Guardian continues, Craig Murray, the former UK ambassador to Uzbekistan, who's been on our show in the past, who is a close associate of Julian Assange, called the CIA claims BS, adding they are absolutely making it up. I know who leaked them. I've met the person who leaked them, and they are certainly not Russian, and it's an insider. It's a leak, not a hack. The two are different things. Murray is the former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, who says he was let go by the British government when he accused the Karamov administration of human rights abuses in Uzbekistan. He's also, as I was saying, close associate of Assange. How certain are we that this was indeed a Russian hack? Because I keep seeing new developments in the U.S. media saying it was a Russian hack. But I know the U.S. has a history of exaggerating claims against Russia and formerly the Soviet Union. And nobody in the States is reporting what Craig Murray has said. He said that he actually got the leaks himself. So to you, what explains why this kind of news isn't being reported here in the States? Well, you know, everyone's bought onto, I hate the word, but everyone's bought onto the narrative. You know, it's a but when you look closely at what the press is reporting, what they're reporting is rumor. You know, they're saying, um, I mean, there was a confident claim on NBC that, um, yes, Putin definitely, Putin himself, Vladimir Putin himself, took time off from his busy schedule to, to say, you know, to direct the leaks, so to direct the hacking and the leaks. You know, and now, you know, was he saying, oh, now we... Uh, go after Donna Brazil. We shall see what Donna Brazil was doing to fix the Democratic nomination uh, <laughs> for Hillary Clinton. I mean, that seems like garbage on the face of it. In fact, and then when you see what the support and the media support for that allegation is, they say, oh, well, this is according to um, intelligence officials, who obviously we can't name, who have heard it from uh, foreign, I think in this case they said foreign governments, diplomatic sources, i.e. other governments who we don't name, who got it from their own spies, who of course we don't name. So it's rumor, you know, we're, we're, we're whipping up hysteria about a threat or, an, you know, um, an attack, a cyber attack from a 
a country with, <laughs> with 7,500 nuclear weapons, um, you know, and quite significant military forces on a basis of rumor. And all just really, this has all been whipped up to excuse the fact that people didn't want Hillary Clinton, that Hillary Clinton ran such a ridiculously inept campaign um, that, you know, that and she lost. I mean, we can regret she lost. We can certainly regret the you know, election of Donald Trump. But the fact was they ran a terrible campaign. They didn't connect with voters, especially voters in, you know, important uh, industrial or <laughs> formerly industrial states. And the, you know, to excuse, excuse themselves, to say it wasn't their fault, they're blaming it all on, you know, a very he- heavily armed nuclear Russia. On the DNC hacks, you quote a Department of Homeland Security state, er, service statement uh, saying that uh, although many of the, those breaches had come from servers operated by a Russian company, the United States was not now in a position to attribute this activity to the Russian government. Then you write uh, something I did see somewhat covered but buried in the New York Times. The company in question is owned by Vladimir Fomenko, a 26-year-old entrepreneur based in Siberia. In a series of indignant emails, Fomenko informed me, that's you, that he merely rents out space on his servers, which are scattered throughout several countries, and that hackers have on occasion used his facilities for criminal activities without our knowledge. Although he has information that undoubtedly will help the investigation, according to Fomenko, Fomenko uh, complained that nobody from the U.S. government had contacted him. He was upset that the FBI, FBI had found it necessary to make a loud statement through the media when he would have happily assisted them. Furthermore, these particular criminals had stiffed him $290 in rental fees. Did he have any idea why the U.S. would not want to contact him if he has information that can help them best find the hackers? And how much do you actually believe him? I I think he's very credible. I mean, he he sent me some, he did send, send me some of the further information that, uh, you know, that he said the FBI couldn't be bothered to ask him about, which was, it was basically, it showed, it indicated at least that the, whoever rented space on his server, which was, I think, the server, he has servers, as, as you said, servers all over, all over the place, including, I think this is one in the Netherlands. He has one in this country, for example. Um, it's fairly clear that whoever rented that space, the native language was English, not Russian, just because of the because the internal communications, um, of course, that could be the Russians pretending to be English speakers, but I don't think so. Um, you know, he, he, you know, I think he has a very fair question. He said that uh, I did ask the FBI, by the way, I said, have you contacted Fomenko? And they gave me a kind of a brush off supply, uh, reply. Um, so um, I find what he says pretty pretty credible. You know, he has his he has these he has this server company which mostly rents to phone pornographers, and as you as you repeated, you know, he's pretty indignant that they 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 stiffed him for two hundred and ninety bucks. You'd think Russian intel. I mean, the whole portrait that emerges from the U.S. case against Russia, if you look at what actually happened, makes the Russians look like complete you know like the Keystone cops. I mean, they. You know they they run they run out on Vladimir's bill. <laughs> they uh, they um, in some of the other hacking they left they sort of left documents in the you know they left signs but sort of behind with the name like a signature of the founder of Russian intelligence. Um, 
they did all sorts of things to make themselves make it look as if they were Russian. You know, maybe they were, but are we therefore to assume that Russian intelligence, you know, that we were so afraid of for decades and throughout the Cold War, that uh, that they've become complete bozos and they make very sort of simple hacking mistakes, um, and yet they were still clever enough to disrupt the U.S. election. Um, you know, it, it it just doesn't stand up. It's, it's clearly a pile of garbage, as far as I can see. I know. I like the idea that they're that uh, Russian intelligence is a huge threat to the United States, and at the same time, they're incredibly incompetent. You know, I don't know how. Uh, well, maybe an incompetent agency could be a threat to the United States if they bungled into something and made some horrible mistake. But I just don't. I don't see the uh, congruity between uh, incompetence and then also being a threat. You write how Trump may have been onto something when the first claims that the Russians hacked the DNC came to first uh, surface. You write that CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity firm that first claimed to have traced an official Russian connection, garnering plenty of free publicity in the process, asserted that two Russian intelligence agencies, the FSB and the the GRU had been working through separate well-known hacker groups, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. One of the hacked and leaked documents had been modified by a user using a, as you were saying, a Russian uh, code name referring to the founder of the Soviet secret police. Here was proof, according to another report on the hack, that this was a Russian intelligence operation. Then you quote Jeffrey Carr, the CEO of cybersecurity firm Taya Global or Taya Global, blogging, okay, raise your hand if you think that a GRU or FSB officer would add Iron Felix his name, the person who founded the secret police, to the metadata of a stolen document before he released it to the world while pretending to be a Romanian hacker. To what degree does this kind of skepticism show up in the media on this story? After all, if journalism is going to be so objective when it comes to things like climate change and climate change denialism, I'm certain that the media is also being objective and reporting that everything the government is saying could be wrong, correct? <laughs> I think the question answers itself. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I mean, this is in a way even sort of people. You know, uh, Trump compared it. I mean, I hate to sort of give tribute to Trump, but I mean, he said this is from the same people who, um, you know, gave us wep- Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, and it's true. Not just the you know the CIA. But, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of them, it's like a gathering rush. I mean, it's what's happened to my profession leaves me in tears. That They, they have not an ounce of skepticism. They just, you know, follow the rumor. I mean, they, they've been, you know, the, there's been all this firming at the mouth about fake news while they, you know, they're putting out what to me looks like, you know, as fake a piece of news as I've come across, in, you know, in all my life. How much maybe hypocrisy do you see in the U.S. Uh, being upset about a potential Russian hacking? Because, again, you quote uh, this uh, gentleman Carr from the Cybersecurity Service saying, in reality, it's almost impossible to uh, confirm attribution in cyberspace. It doesn't take much to leave a trail of breadcrumbs to whichever government you want to blame for an attack. And then you add, for example, a tool developed by the Chinese to attack Google in 2009 was later reused by the so-called Equation Group against officials of the 
the Afghan government. So the Afghans, had they investigated, might have assumed they were being hacked by the Chinese. Thanks to a leak by Edward Snowden, however, it now appears that the equation group was, in fact, the NSA. So in light of the Snowden leaks and now the claiming of Russia's hacking the DNC or and or the election, to what degree do you think the U.S., the government and the media are displaying a level of hypocrisy when it comes to some sort of cyber warfare or surveillance? Totally hypocritical, and, and you know, and not to say willful ignorance into, on the part of the media. And you know, let's not forget that the people who really, you know, launched cyber attacks as a in, as an offensive weapon was the you know was the U.S. and Israel um, when they used a cyber attack on Iran to try and disrupt their nuclear program, the so-called Stuxnet attack. Um, you know, that was Obama. Um, so again, it's the it's the it's the height of hypocrisy, but it's also it's very alarming because you know as you just said, quoted me saying that the um, that it's impossible, almost impossible to establish attribution, you know, because it's very easy, it's so easy to to you know to lay a false trail to someone else's doorstep. So if we're talking, you know, Obama is now talking about retaliating. We got to, we're going to retaliate against the Russians. Uh, in some unspecified manner, well, you know, that could really start something because of, you know, cyber weapons do, we think, work in a kind of, in a kind of indiscriminate way. Um, so God knows if they get them, you know, start a cyber war, God, you know, we've no idea what would happen. It's like nuclear weapons. We don't really know. The Stuxnet virus that they sent into Iran reappeared. You know, the, the reason it became public was it started popping up all over the world. I mean, these this, these things are uncontrollable. So it's it's the height of folly to be you know to making confident announcements that you know we know the Russians did this. We know that Vladimir Putin himself, maybe sitting at his laptop, you know, <laughs> uh, in you know in his bedroom in the Kremlin, was personally <laughs> saying, "Oh, it's, now it's time to affect the congressional the race in the 14th congressional district in Florida or whatever else we're supposed to be." We're being told we are being told things like that, uh, you know, to to actually do things on the basis of that kind of allegation, I think is highly dangerous. Well, maybe if the Democrats and maybe if Hillary Clinton had the algorithms that Putin has, that she could have actually won the election, <laughs> apparently. Uh, <laughs> if Hillary Clinton would be able to run a halfway competent campaign, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And now there was another article this week uh, in uh, Politico about how she completely blew it in Michigan, how it was just a horrible oh, yeah. political strategy. In an article yesterday at Medium.com by Alexandra Chalupa, which I thought was a fake name, the former consultant for the Democratic National Committee who led research into Trump's Russian ties. Uh, she discussed the potential motives Putin may have had to hack the DNC if he actually did. Alexander said those motives could include the economic vulnerability of Russia at this time, especially due to sanctions imposed by the U.S. and supported by Clinton over Ukraine. Alexandra also suggested that Putin might see as, quote, the threat of Hillary Clinton. In 2011, Putin accused Secretary of State Clinton of meddling in Russian politics after Putin's United Russian Party won a landslide of of legislative seats in what many experts believe was a fraudulent election, sparking massive protests in Moscow. Clinton has since condemned the invasion
invasion of Crimea, sworn to uphold U.S. obligations to NATO, denounced Russian interference during the campaign, and would have likely continued the sanctions against Russia. Trump, in contrast, has been named an honorary Russian Cossack. For Russia, not only was Trump a malleable candidate, but Clinton was a fierce fierce opponent to their aims who needed to be stopped. How much could you see, if there was any kind of potential hack by Putin, that this would just be retaliation for a previous hack by Clinton. Is, is What's the potential that this is just payback? Well, that, yeah, you know, that could be possible. I mean, it was also, as, as you just mentioned, reading out that piece, you know, Hillary Clinton was basically promising war with Russia, or certainly, you know, military confrontation with Russia in Syria and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, in a way, it would have been quite sensible for the Russians to, uh, to root for, um, you know, to root for Trump, who was saying he wanted to be friends with Russia. I mean, that would have been, the, you know, that would have been a very sensible, was a very sensible attitude on the part of the Russians. Um, I have to say also, no one so far has produced a single solitary, solitary shred of it, a person who, who was, whose vote was changed because of reading, you know, Don Podesta's email. <laughs> if you look at those emails, they're mostly pretty boring, and they show a rather bunch of rather small-minded and people sort of, basically in the process of losing an election. Uh, you know, and he's got his cooking recipes in there. You know, they all say, Russia hacked the election, and that's why we got Trump. Well, you know, there's no, those dots don't connect. Um, you know, Clinton, and that Politico article you, you mentioned is the key, to me, the key explanation of how uh, Hillary Clinton managed to lose. I mean, it describes, for the listeners who haven't seen it, it, it describes how not only did she not campaign in Michigan, one of the key states, but the, the her campaign headquarters told other Democrats not to campaign for her in Michigan. Because <laughs> their stupid computer model said they were going to win by five points, <laughs> which they weren't and didn't. So <clears throat> when you you know that's you know that's why she lost because you know they just weren't very good campaigners, good politicians. Uh, but, you know, therefore, this sort of excuse, you know, oh, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't, you know, it was nothing I did, it was nothing I did, is what Vladimir Putin, he somehow, you know, hacked the election. And that they, they're, they're making it sound like Vladimir Putin personally manipulated the voting machines or whatever, you know, the actual mechanism of the election uh, in order to make it, you know, Trump, you know, X and Clinton only Y. But in fact, even on the what the hacking we know took place by whoever, you know, it was just a bunch of rather boring emails which showed that the, um, which were quite helpful. I'm glad they happened because they showed that what people had suggested, which was that the Democratic Party was fixing the nomination process to deny it to Sanders and give it to Clinton, shows that was actually what happened. So if Putin did do it, which, as I keep saying, I don't think he did, we should send him a grat- gratitude for his <laughs> services to American democracy. <laughs> we are speaking with Andrew Coburn. He wrote the December cover article for Harper's Magazine, The New Red Scare, reviving the art of threat inflation. In that article, you write the so-called Russian hacks as promoted by interested parties in politics and industry are firmly in the tradition of Cold War threat inflation. Half a century later, the Soviet Union is long gone, along with the international communist movement it championed, given that Russia's defense budget is roughly one 
tenth of the United States, and that its military often cannot afford the latest weapon uh, weapons that Russian manufacturers offer for export. Resurrecting this old enemy might seem to pose a challenge to even the brightest minds in the Pentagon. Yet the Russian menace, we are informed, also again looms large. How dependent do you believe the military-industrial complex, and to a greater extent the U.S. economy, is on threat inflation? After all, the military-industrial complex is one of the few thriving U.S. industries. Well, that's right. It, I, it's very dependent. And, you know, and for a while now, they've been making do with, you know, with terrorists, a bunch of sort of raggedy fellows with long beards and, you know, <clears throat> obviously very, very pernicious people. Um, and they've managed to spend, you know, several trillion dollars, not, by the way, defeating, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda slash Islamic State terrorists. I mean, they've managed, you know, they managed to screw that up. But it's very hard. They've got, you know, schemes they've got in ongoing schemes. They like to spend a trillion dollars buying a whole new set of strategic nuclear weapons, new missiles, new submarines, new bombers, new submarine missiles, new satellites, uh, new actual nuclear bombs themselves. That's kind of hard to justify if you say, you know, the enemy is this, as I say, bunch of raggedy terrorists sitting in a city no one had ever heard of before in the middle of Syria or Iraq. Um, you need a big, what they call in the jargon, a peer competitor. I mean, someone who's sort of vaguely as strong as us to, as a threat to justify that. And the only real, there's only really, well, there's two candidates for that. That's Russia and China. And I say, we, we're sort of kind of going easy on the Chinese threat. Uh, I think maybe because we owe them so much money. Uh, but the Russian threat, you know, has been dusted off, picked up, dusted off, and is back. You know, we put it back there to say it's because we had to be scared of the Russians. And there's all these scary remarks about how they, you know, they're mobilizing against Western Europe. And now we're sending tanks back to Western Europe and missile sites all over, nuclear missiles, so potential nuclear missile sites all over Western Europe. Um, so, you know, that's that's why we're doing it. I think this is why this is happening. You know, the defense industry, defense complex needs a threat and needs a, you know, an apparently sort of equal, I mean, threat equal in strength to us, even though, as you just read out, you know, it, it, the, the, the Russian military is, you know, they, they spend a tenth as much money. Um, actually, I think their budget went down last year. Uh, most of their army are one-year conscripts, you know, which is, means they're pretty useless as soldiers. Um, you know, the, most of their equipment is really old. I mean, they, even their new equipment doesn't work that well. I mean, it's pathetic. It's pathetic that we, <laughs> this is the best we can do threat-wise, but I guess it's all, that's all the only candidates around. You, you write that throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the Soviet threat reliably prompted infusions of cash into the defense complex to the gratification of its many functionaries, not least the congressmen and senators who were, sim- who were amply uh, rewarded for their role in lubricating the process. Meanwhile, the American threat was performing a similar role on the other side of the Iron Curtain, sustaining the Soviet military's grip on the commanding heights of a comparatively impoverished domestic economy. So did the American threat come first? Was the Russian buildup in response to the U.S. responding to a lie? And to what degree do you think a U.S. lie provoked and promoted the Cold War? I'd say, you know, I don't want to excuse the Russians. I mean, I think 
as I, you know, as you've just indicated, I think both sides are equally guilty on this. I would suggest, in military terms, that the Americans started it. Um, just because the American, you know, if you get to the real root of it, I think it's because the American economy, for all sorts of reasons in the later 1940s, that they needed a threat at that point. I mean, you know, Stalin was imposing a very cruel and repressive regime or regimes across Eastern Europe, across the countries that he had occupied in the course of World War II. And that we had actually said, by the way, Franklin Roosevelt had basically said he could keep. I mean, that was the nub of the agreements made at the end of the war. Um, but, you know, once once the, once the, we were off and running, um, he was, uh, you know, it was both sides. I, I will say, you know, the, the, the Russians were so significant, the Soviets were so significantly weaker for most of that time. I mean, that at the time when we were, you know, Americans were being told, children were being told to duck and cover to practice for nuclear war by ducking under their school desks, you know, the Russians had they, had, they basically had a few bombers which were a copy of an, uh, knockoffs of an American World War II bomber, the B-29. Um, later on, when John Kennedy said, you know, talked about, got ele- one election on the basis of that the, there was a missile gap, that the Russians had many more missiles than than us, and you know, it it turned out that actually they had four. It didn't work very well either. Just four, count them, four missiles. And in response, but he couldn't he couldn't admit that when he got into office. So he went off and built a thousand Minutemen missiles, which the Russians then uh, countered by building you know hundred thousands indeed of their own missiles. So it's it's been back and forth. I mean, but I'd say the Americans, because they're richer, have been making the running. You write that it is not as if the military lacks sufficient cash. The Army budget alone, some $150 billion, is more than twice Russia's spending for their entire armed forces. The ratios for the other services are similarly unbalanced. The answer would seem to lie in the military's priorities, thanks to which actual defense needs uh, take second place to more urgent concerns, such as the perennial inter-service battle for budget share, as well as the care and feeding of defense contractors. So what's more important than defense to the U.S. military, in your opinion? Well, defense is a means to money. <laughs> the the uh, you, you know, you really have to understand this. It's all about money. So that, you know, defense comes secondary. You know, we could point to all these, uh, I think I do in the piece, some of the, you know, the fact that what they spend the money on are basically things that are pretty useless for defense. You know, the F-35 fighter that can't take off when there's a thunderstorm within the uh, within 25 miles. Um, you know, the, the, the new... For, new $17 billion aircraft carrier they're building that uh, can't launch planes properly, um, you know, that, which we've been able to do for 60 years. Now they managed to build something that can't do it. Um, you, know, the, 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 you know, I could go on and on. It's, um, it's clear that they're not really very serious about war. You know, defense means getting ready for war. And by the, you know, these total sort of in non-performing weapon systems they keep building, you can think, well, what's the purpose? They don't work very well. And the reason is they do work well at generating, you know, a flood of taxpayer cash into the pockets and uh, trouser pockets of the military companies and their, you know, their pals in the military who they, you know, go, they pay off in the form of retirement jobs. 
So do you see these uh, claims of Russian hacks as part of a continuing provocation of Russia by the U.S. that has been taking place since the end of World War II? Yes, I think it's, you know, well, in this case, as I was saying earlier, there's a wrinkle to it, which is we need, it's not just to explain the, well, I think, you know, these claims have various purposes. One is, as I said earlier, to excuse, cover up the, you know, the shocking failure of the Democrats for purely domestic reasons in the, in the, in the election. Um, so Hillary Clinton can, and I'm told, reliably informed, does sort of go to bed every night saying it was nothing to do with me, it was all Vladimir Putin. Um, so that's one function. The other thing is to, um, is to, <clears throat> is, as you suggested, you know, is to sort of whoop up the Russian threat because there was a problem. We have a we had a winning candidate. We've had a winning, you know, Donald Trump, who, despite his many other many obvious faults that he, you know, don't get me wrong, he's a terrible person. He did get one thing right, which he said, "There's no reason for us to be, you know, not to be on reasonable terms with Russia. We can settle our differences." You know, I think he's that is clearly correct, and I think the whole national security establishment has sort of risen up in horror at the prospect, just when we had a nice little sort of Cold War revival that was building up, and Hillary Clinton was certainly pledged to continue that, you have this outfielder, this guy suddenly popping up and winning the White House saying, oh, no, I don't think we're going to do that. Well, I think that just couldn't be permitted. And he, Trump, you know, uh, they're obviously not going to stop him getting inaugurated. But I think the idea would be the time he does become president, it'll become politically impossible for him to pursue the line on Russia that, you know, he was arguing, on which he got elected. You know, people, <laughs> uh, the people did speak and, and, you know, they did elect someone who said we need to be friends with Russia. Well, that can't be allowed. Um, you can't get to spend a trillion dollars on new nuclear weapons and all the rest of it. If, you know, if you've got a, someone in the White House running around saying, you know, we don't need you know, we we can be friends with Russia. So I think this is really the battle for Trump's mind. I think, and, uh, you know, he'll be, which will be put to rights by the time he gets into power. You write on this approach by the Department of Defense to focus on, I guess, uh, the bottom line instead of the front lines. Uh, you write that uh, it generates a staggering amount of waste. Many of the headline scandals, such as the $200 million F-35 fighter that could uh, not fly within 25 miles of a thunderstorm, have become notorious. But the list is long. Earlier this month, it was reported by The Washington Post, quote, the Pentagon has buried an internal study that exposed $125 billion in administrative waste in its business operations amid fears Congress would use the findings as an excuse to slash the defense budget, according to interviews and confidential memos obtained by the Washington Post. How much do you think this kind of waste that the Washington Post is reporting is driven by a lack of prioritization of defense and instead other goals being prioritized by the military's leadership? Oh, I do. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, there was, there was less to that study that met the, than met the eye, by the way, but the, uh, uh, it's all, it's all about, you know, once you, you know, the, as I keep saying, um, the idea that people have to get on board what you have to realize, it's not about defense, it's about money. Then it all becomes clear. You know, then you understand why, you know, they they insist on building things like the F-35 and, you know, a host of other things. Because, you know, the, you cannot have the military-industrial complex, the whole industrial 
you know, economic system in the United States could not accept a cheap, efficient defense uh, defense system because you know there's so many you know so many economic interests at stake. Um, there's a reason that you know the CEOs of the big defense companies now earn as much or more than the CEOs of the you know some of the internet companies. It's um, you know there are huge interests at stake here who could not tolerate a you know an efficient and sensible defense policy <laughs> so we have to put up with this garbage Andrew you write that the recent accusation that Putin has been uh, working to destabilize our democratic system has taken matters to a whole new level evoking the red scare of the 1950s and I've seen some people posting uh, similar comments on uh, social media why does the Russian hack story remind you of McCarthyism what does it how does this uh, Russian hack story frighten you in a way that McCarthyism probably frightened the people who were the victims of it back in the 50s because there's kind of a witch hunt going on i mean you have to i mean even you know so-called mainstream journalists i you know journalists that have the blessings of the establishment and they are writing and certainly on social media saying anyone who you know if you reported what was in a dnc email like you know the, the the Democratic National Committee fixing the nomination process for one candidate over another, or if you reported, you know, something John Podesta said in an email, then you're effectively working for the other side. You're working for Russia, and you know you, should, you shouldn't be allowed. I mean, I've seen some idiots saying that you know people should be ashamed of themselves. They're idiots for doing this. this is a maniac on Newsweek. But this is like a pervasive idea. It's an attempt at thought control. You know, information control, even thought control, you know, you mustn't, you know, that you are being disloyal. You're being disloyal to the United States. If you even looked at an email embarrassing to Hillary Clinton, because it probably came, you know, it was released on the personal orders of Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is very dicey territory we're getting into here. It's all about, you know, control of the media. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Trump, would be into that and not on this case, but he, you know, he doesn't like the press and thinks they should be locked up basically. Um, but to have the so-called, you know, the, the, you know, the democratic and, you know, big with big D and small D party urging this on, I think it's very dangerous. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little nervous, uh, at what's going on in this country with this kind of hysteria. It's, you know, it's one thing to say the Russians have got a bigger missile that's coming to get us. Well, okay. You know, you can say that it's not true, but, you know, if you say that in the past, if you said that, you were simply being mistaken. Now, if you say, well, you know, oh, boy, look at that very interesting email that's just popped up in WikiLeaks. Well, you're a, you're kind of a Russian agent. And, you know, you know what happens to Russian agents. Um, so I think it's a rather a scary time for that reason. Yeah, it's very frightening. We have been speaking with Andrew Coburn, who wrote the De- December cover article for Harper's Magazine, The New Red Scare. This is Andrew's third appearance on This Is Hell this year. More than any other guest, Andrew was on earlier uh, to discuss his Harper's cover stories in March to uh, discuss the article, Television Turnout and the Election Industrial Complex, which, in light of what happened on Election Day, is definitely something you should go back and read. Also, uh, and this story keeps developing more and more, he was on in 
September to talk about his story, Acceptable Losses, Aiding and Abetting the Saudi Slaughter in Yemen. That is, again, uh, it, you know, none of these things are suffering from timeliness. Both these articles are great works, and people should go back if they want to find out what's going on in Yemen, if they want to find out what happened with the election. Uh, these are two articles that you should definitely check out. Uh, Andrew, one last question for you. As always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, this may be a comfort uh, to those who worry at the prospects of war. Yet the threat inflation that keeps the wheels turning can carry us toward catastrophe. Among the token uh, vessels deployed to pressure Eastern European NATO countries have been one or two Aegis destroyers sent to patrol the Baltic and Black Seas. The missiles they carry are for air defense, yet the launchers can just as easily carry nuclear or conventional cruise missiles without any observer being able to tell the difference. To what degree do you think Hillary supporters right now are unwittingly, possibly, inflating the uh, Russian threat and potentially taking a small step toward catastrophe? I definitely think that. That's why I think it's so criminally irresponsible they're doing this, because at the end of the day, we have thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons that can effectively destroy the planet that very, you know, can be launched very easily. You know, it's not like, you know, you'd have to have thousands of people, you know, millions of troops mobilized and putting on uniforms and marching towards the frontier like, you know, happened 100 years ago. Now, you know, it can happen in minutes, seconds even. Someone makes a mistake. Someone on one side thinks the other side is about to launch and presses a button and bang, very literally bang. So this yet, you know, is one more reason to be very scared. I mean, this is, it is the question from hell because it is very scary the way in which we're getting very close to the edge under, and under the control of very irresponsible people who, uh, you know, don't seem to understand. I mean, as I said at the end of that article, you know, that the, no one's really in the, so as I, under, as I was informed, as I could find out, no one in the Defense Department or the White House and maybe the Kremlin is really thinking this through. You know, my God, how close to the edge we're getting. And that's, you know, that's why we should be paying attention and, uh, I don't know, getting ready to duck under that school desk. <laughs> I'm sure that will help us all. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for being on the show three times in 2016. Have a happy new year. I have your email address, so you know I'm going to be bugging you in the future. Uh, I, and I look forward to having you back on in 2017. Okay, Chuck, me too. Take care. All right, take care. Hi, it's Bruce or Alex. Chuck is out this week with back problems. We are running a clip show. We should be live next week. Fingers crossed. The Russian left is in disarray and cannot mount a respectable challenge to the government of Vladimir Putin. Here to tell us why that's the case and why Facebook won't allow our guest to boost a post of his podcast analyzing Russian media coverage of Russiagate and Trump. Returning to This Is Hell podcast host and Russia analyst Sean Guillory wrote the Jacobin article Left in a Corner. Politically isolated and facing repression, the Russian left is pondering its future. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sean. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Sean is the host of the weekly Sean's Russia blog podcast, where he covers Eurasian politics, history, and culture. You may remember Sean being on our show back in July of last year to talk about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who people were comparing to Donald Trump at the time, and Sean explained... 
Don't make that comparison. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean's Russia blog, and you can find out more about Sean at Sean's Russia blog.org. You've been wrapped up in a controversy of late when it comes to posting on Facebook. So let's get to that right away at the Sean's Russia blog, Facebook page. You posted, I would like to promote this interview with analyst and author Lawrence Bogoslav on Russian press coverage of Trump. Besides being quite interesting in and of itself, I think people would do well knowing how the other side sees Trump, Russiagate, and Russian meddling. I need your help, so please share or send it to anyone you think would be interested. The reason is I tried to boost this post on Facebook, but it was rejected because it's a political, quote-unquote political ad, to place a political ad. I'd have to give Facebook my mailing address, driver's license, or passport number, and the last four digits of my social security number. What do you think they mean by your post being political? Isn't everything for that matter political? And, and wouldn't, that, wouldn't that mean that any news source reporting on anything Trump in Russia would not be allowed to be boosted? I mean, that seems to be the case. Um, you know, I, I, the only thing I can think of is that um, it be it was about Trump and Russia. This is the only thing I could imagine because I doubt they listened to the interview, which is about an edited collection of Russian press articles that have been translated to English really from the 1990s about how Russians have reported on Trump and particularly around the election. Um, and I guess this is too sensitive, uh, politically sensitive to be boosted as a post, you know, basically for me to give Facebook money uh, you know, now they're defining what is political and what isn't for us. So, yeah, and this is the thing that I, I don't really get because you you tested this theory by placing an ad for your last podcast with another uh, Russian author, uh, Michael Idov, and it was approved. Not only right, you're right. Not only do I reject that my podcast on Russian uh, coverage of Trump is political, there's no way I'm giving them my driver's license or passport or mailing address. I've looked at their data privacy statement, and I can't find anything specific about what Facebook does with this information, unless I'm missing something, which is entirely possible. So, is Facebook blocking? your podcast being boosted, in your opinion, not based on the podcast content, but this individual edition of your podcast title. In other words, is are they just doing keyword searches and not considering your actual content? I think they are because I actually tried boosting another post, the, the interview I did uh, with um, a journalist that covers Russian foreign policy towards Israel, Iran, and Syria, and I tried to boost that, and that was rejected for being political. But then my next interview, which dealt with Russian literature and terrorism, that was not deemed political by Facebook. So <laughs> I can only think that there's basically keywords, um, you know, or or the images, or you know, maybe the description. I don't know, but I just I I really have a problem. I mean. The, the privacy information aside, which, you know, granted, I'm not I'm not a legal expert on this stuff, but, you know, as a layperson who just looked into, you know, what, OK, if I give them this information, what are they going to do with it? Because we all know that Facebook's part of its business model is selling people's information. Um, you know, I just wasn't comfortable to do that, to to give them money and have to give my identity. And then but, you know, the bigger problem is, I think, is that they're using their monopoly power to define what is political and what isn't. For people like myself or others who want to, uh, you know, spread the word about you know the stuff they're doing, and there have been a couple of media articles as a result of this uh, that, where other people are being caught up in this as well. So, you know, I'm certainly not the only one. I know uh, there's another podcast that review that interviews scholars about books. 
they have a Russia channel. They their their interview with on this Russian uh, Russians on Trump book was also not approved. Uh, they have a, a books on new pol- or books on politics channel, which their their podcast about you know books about political science have not been approved. So I think this is a really like you know Facebook has been put into a situation where it doesn't want its monopoly a power question, but it also you know wants to get out from under all the scrutiny it's gotten for you know fake news or whatever you want to call it. But I think it's a really dangerous precedent they're setting. I'm definitely going to try to boost this uh, interview when we put it online to see what happens. I think I'll just call it Trump, terrorism, Sean Guillory, Russia, and see what happens. So so what, we'll effect, what effect do you think this is, uh, policy will have on the ability for users of Facebook to share Facebook? What do you think, or share their information on Facebook? What do you think this signals for the future of sharing information on Facebook? I think either you're going to have to give information, you know, you could have to go through these hoops because what they do is after you register all this information, then they send you a physical letter, which gives you some sort of code to put in to verify your existence. And, you know, from from one aspect, I understand, you know, why they would want to verify an advertiser's existence, considering all the things that have happened in the last couple of years. But, you know, the fact that they're only requiring this for people who are posting, quote unquote, political ads, I think is a real big problem. If they required everybody to register, then, you know, as unpleasant as it is, I would understand. Right. I think that's a reasonable, technically a reasonable request. But the fact that they're only doing this for so-called political content is, is you know, really troubling. And I think what is going to happen is that, you know, people like myself who either relies on friends and listeners to spread the word and Facebook does account for a lot of my traffic. I'm sure it's similar for you for This Is Hell as well. It it basically puts, it prevents me from, you know, giving them a couple of bucks. You know, I'm not giving them a lot of money, but it, it allows more people to be exposed to the content I'm providing about Russia, which is essentially my mission, you know, is to increase the awareness and knowledge of Russia as a very complicated, rich history and not, you know, what you get in a normal me- media coverage. You got to save that letter from Facebook. That's like getting a telegraph from a phone company. That's that's <laughs> that's friggin great, dude. A, an actual letter from Facebook. Who knew they even had letters anymore? I, I bet they. they I... Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Facebook yeah. won't allow you to uh, boost this podcast, and I just want to talk about this podcast just for a second. So Bogoslav's mm-hmm. writing on Russian media media's coverage of Trump, it dates back to Trump's coverage in the 1990s. So prior to being president or even running for president, how did Russia, mm-hmm. uh, media, Russian media view Trump? Well, it, he's not – Bogoslav isn't writing about it. He's republishing translations of articles that the Russian press wrote about Trump. Right. He's not commentating. So it's interesting because at the beginning in the 1990s, they kind of saw Trump as this symbol of American capitalism, right? He's really over the top. And in the in the 1990s for Russia, in the sense of, you know, what is capitalism? What is a capitalist? And in, in some respects, he kind of served as, a, as an image for this, you know, wheeling and dealing rich guy who's ostentatious. And then by the mid-2000s, as more skepticism of capitalism became in the Russian press and, and intellectuals and co- analysts, Trump became, they were quite wary of him because that was the time when he was going to Moscow, he was trying to do hotel deals, and they kind of saw him as, you know, a potentially kind of 
corrupt figure, not necessarily an honest figure. Um, so they kind of, and two ostentations and basically kind of a blowhard. So there was more skepticism towards him. Uh, and then by the election, uh, there's a wide array, and most of the articles in the volume deals with the election, of course, and, and after the election, there's a wide array of opinions from the nationalist Russian right, which sees Trump as like the savior for you know, the globe, the world and conservative values to more skeptical understandings of what is going on. What does this say about American politics and what does this have to do with us in Russia? And what's really fascinating about these these articles, the sensible ones uh, from analysts, is that they have a really deep understanding of American politics, so much so that some of the things that American politicians, American commentators were saying about Trump's presidency as representing like uh, frustration amongst the American electorate, people who felt left out from you know the system. Some Russian commentators were already pointing to that in 2015. Well, that's really interesting because being outside of it, you don't have to, you're not so immersed with whatever echo chamber that you're in and the narrative that we're having here in the U.S. about the news. Is it fair for me to assume? Okay, no, it's never fair to assume. But is it accurate for me to guess the Russian media is completely dismissive of RussiaGate and they view it as some sort of Rus- Russophobic conspiracy theory? Um, it depends on where the, the where they stand on the political spectrum. Right. So the more conservative outlets, of course, just kind of laugh at it and just see it as, you know, this is uh, a fight within the American political class, and they're using us as a scapegoat. This is just Russophobia we've seen forever, blah, blah, blah. What's actually more interesting is the, the liberal responses, because <laughs> the Russia they see in American press around all of this Russiagate is a Russia they don't even have never known to exist, which is a Russia that a Russian government that's very effective in its operations, a Russian government that is able to, you know, fool and swindle people with propaganda, a, a Russian state that has some sort of, you know, mastermind uh, leader, i.e. Putin and security services. Um, you know, it, they, they, a lot of liberal Russians, uh, and they've written about this in the Russian press, and some extent even in English, uh, they're like, what is this Russia <laughs> they're talking about? And uh, the other thing is that it, they see it as quite disturbing because in some ways it, it gives them, it, it tells them that some of the things the Russian government has been telling them about the American, American Russophobia might actually be true. And for, for some of them, they, they held up the American media as a model to emulate in terms of journalism. And this has shown that at the end of the day, they're just as you know partisan and re- reflecting the the dominant discourses of of the system they live in. So fantastic! At least uh, U.S. mainstream uh, media and journalism is destroying itself to the Russian audience. I kind of wish they'd do it over here too. So let's get to your uh, Jacobin article on Russia's sure. left. You quote Sergei Udaltsov. Uh, the leader of the Left Front, as he concluded his plea for Russian leftists to support the Communist Party candidate Pavel Grudinin uh, at an early February forum on the Russian presidential election. And this was uh, the election was in March. So this is a month before the election. And Udaltsov said, 
Many see non-systemic leftists as rejects and losers who secretly masturbate somewhere and have nothing serious to offer. Enough masturbating in the corner. Let's embrace this system to the death. You write how this pointed to a dilemma that leftists have debated throughout history. To what extent should a left-wing movement participate in the system? It ultimately seeks to destroy. The issue before Udaltsov and others was whether to support Grudinin or join the liberal opposition leader Alexei Navalny's call to boycott the election, challenge the system from within or from without. It's an old question. Is that the primary debate right now amongst the opposition to Vladimir Putin in Russia? Um, yeah, I would say in, in a real general sense is, is how do you approach, um, how do you build a movement and how do you, what do you do with the movement that exists, which is primarily around Alexei, I mean, uh, um, Alexei Navalny. Uh, and you know, Udaltsov, who I think rightfully calls for the le- Russian left to be a third force, um, and nonetheless, the Russian left is incredibly weak and doesn't really have a strong constituency. And in many respects, it's left in a position where it actually has to be a part of and to some extent even take advantage of the crowds that Navalny is able to mobilize. Um some Russian leftists who, who argue for at least standing in some sort of cooperation with Navalny, which Udovsov himself doesn't reject. Um, he would like to cooperate as well. But they say that, you know, look, if you leave this opposite Russian political opposition in the hands of Navalny, and having politics that we recognize and disagree with, his neoliberalism, his nationalism, things like this, then you're basically saying we won't have a, a say-so uh, in this movement if we stand on the sidelines. So we have to participate on it if we want to have any influence over its direction. So is this kind of like the whatever there is of a left here in the United States? Is it kind of like them voting for the Democratic Party candidate, even though they completely disagree with the Democratic Party candidate, they only see it as an opposition vote to the conservative and Republican candidate? In some respects, yeah. But the other thing, the other problem, of course, is that in Russia, and, and you certainly have that here, but I think in Russia it's a lot more difficult, of course, because of the political system. But you have a lot of protests going on, a lot of small protests around the country. Uh, outside of Moscow for the last six months, there have been some pretty interesting and, and loud protests from residents against um, landfills and garbage dumps, some of which have emanated toxic fumes, sending children to the hospital. I mean, there's some great one protest. You actually have residents at this this protest throwing snowballs at the riot police and trying to beat up the, the local mayor. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, Russian leftists, of course, back all of this stuff, but it's really difficult for them to parachute in and try to be a part of these movements because, one, they're very localized. The locals tend to be suspect, and they repeatedly say in their protests that this isn't political because they understand that if you start making political protests, then the, the chances of the authorities coming down and squashing it are even greater. Though, of course, in these garbage protests, you do have the arrest of some of the organized local organizers. So, so what explains why 
I'm only, I'm sorry to come off as an idiot. What explains why I'm only hearing about this now from you? Why aren't these kind of protests in Russia covered here in the U.S. media? I mean, I understand that they've decided that having foreign bureaus is just too expensive and blah, blah, blah. But they could pick up Reuters feeds. They could pick up other feeds from other countries. What explains why we don't see the coverage of these protests in Russia? A lot of it, I think, is because, I mean, you do have a little bit, you know, but you have to search for it, right? You have to be somebody like me who actually like, pays attention to this stuff, I think. But, in, you know, in a general sense, you're right. It, they're not covered. Um, and I think the reason why is that a lot of the protests in Russia, a lot of these local protests, um, they don't fit into uh, an American understanding of how protests in Russia should be. That is, it should be democratic. It should be about toppling the system. And a lot of these local protests aren't about Putin. Um, they're about, you know, local business leaders, local politicians. A lot of the, the ire of locals is geared to those figures and not necessarily geared to this, the central government because, A, they understand that, you know, this isn't going to appealing to the government and complaining about the central, the federal government isn't going to help us. And they try to use the pressure on locals to actually get the federal government to, to intervene. So you'll have these interesting cases where locals strategically appear, appeal to Putin uh, and federal officials to come in and basically clean up, uh, you know, their corrupt local officials. And this unfortunately doesn't fit into a kind of general sense of, you know, American, American media looking at protests in Russia or in a lot of other places as as inevitably making that country more like us. But doesn't right? this, these issues are rooted locally? Doesn't this lead to a perception here in the US of whatever country where we ignore these protests that there is a lack of dissent and potential for uh far more totalitarianism than may actually exist within whatever country it is. Right. It does. And, and another thing it, it it misses too is that it it you fail to see that for, for Russians on the local level, they have a lot of concerns, a lot of ecological concerns. Um, a lot of they protest issues like, you know, the attempts to build uh, pipelines through their towns and villages from uh, gas companies. They uh, protest against, you know, the spilling of toxic waste, which, you know, ruins their mushroom picking or ruins their land. Um, it, it, it doesn't allow us to see Russians as multidimensional people who actually care about issues, you know, in some ways similar to a lot of us. Um, so that's the one thing. Two, I think it, it also gives the false impression that, you know, Russians aren't politically active, that they're disconnected, um, and that they, you know, kind of blindly follow whatever their government tells them. Uh, and this just isn't the case. Um, they just don't really approach their government the way we want them to. You write, now let's talk about a, dis, a different disconnect, because you write that even yeah. as the organized Russian left remained adrift, and this is during the 1990s after the Soviet Union fell on December 26th, 1991. I always love that it's on Boxing Day. I don't know why. <laughs> it's the day that, you know, when servants are supposed to be served by their masters. I don't know. There's just something right. weird there. I don't know what it is. But uh, why, the, why the disconnect between the intellectual left's vibrancy and the organized left being, well, organized well in those early days in the 1990s particularly after the 1996 election um the communist party basically just just 
especially after Putin became president, um, it lost a lot of its prestige and it, it lost its will to really challenge the system. I mean, today, the, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation is a nominal opposition. You know, they, in Russia, they call it the systemic opposition. Um, it's a nominal opposition. It may kind of grumble. It runs candidates to oppose the ruling party or, or the government. But it really, most of the time, it votes along with the government. Um, it doesn't pose any real opposition to, to the Putin system at all. Uh, and so you do get this disconnect. And then also you, for a lot of intellectuals, uh, the, the Russian Communist Party is incredibly conservative. It's a nationalist party for the most part. It's socially conservative. It's in many ways intellectually conservative. It, 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 it scoffs at, you know, so-called Western styles and values. Um, and then it has the taint of, you know, Soviet repression. So and it's kind of it's continued glorification of Stalin. So for a lot of intellectuals who are rethinking the Soviet experience and maybe influenced by, as I say, translations of, you know, new Marxist thought or post-structuralist thought, the KPRF is, is the Russian Communist Party is just, you know, a dinosaur that there's no future in it. Um, but I should say that for the last couple of years, there's been some stirring, particularly in the provincial, at the provincial level in provincial Russia, of younger, uh, more motivated Communist Party members who are trying to change that party from within. But they have made, I think, little headway in terms of the party at the federal level. Uh, for the most part, it seems that even on the provincial level, they're still kowtowing to, to the government. You write that the first decade of Putinism had paradoxical consequences. It provided left-wing intellectuals the means to reflect on the Soviet system and reconfigure socialist politics, just as Putin's oil boom was robbing it of a political constituency, a potential constituency. How did the oil boom rob the left of its constituency? How much does oil keep Putin popular and in power? Um, I mean, oil is significant. Um, because first off, it allows the Russian government to, it pegs its budget to oil prices. So when oil prices are high, they're able to maintain, you know, pensions and health care and a lot of social services. Um, but most importantly, in the mid 2000s, you know, it, it shouldn't be taken lightly how much Russia transformed in the mid 2000s because of high oil prices. People suddenly, you know, unemployment, I mean, employment was increased, salaries were increased, uh, people were able to renovate their apartments, they were able to buy new cars, they were able to travel. Um, the oil boom created enough of a middle class uh, in Russia to sap any kind of disgruntledness amongst the population in general. I mean, this is not to say that everybody benefited, everybody didn't benefit. But enough people benefited. And just from seeing, looking around you and comparing what your life was in the 1990s and even in the Soviet period, you were living, Russians were living better on average than they ever had. So this, of course, these good times, as you, know, you can imagine, made left politics kind of irrelevant to some extent. Um, it's it's quite interesting that you know people like uh, Alexei Navalny and other liberal oppositionists, the, this young new young cohort that's uh, rising in Russian uh, opposition circles, are basically Putin's children. You know they they come from families more or less that you know benefited off the 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 economic prosperity of the 2000s, and that memory continues to some extent. 
Um, and, and this maintains Putin's power. But the other thing I think is also in, more important than that is that Putin and his government has been incredibly successful of, of, to eliminate uh, any potential alternative to his power. So, you know, you can ask Russians, you know, I may not like Putin, they may say, but who else? Who else is actually viable? Um, and it's really hard to find anyone. And yeah, let's get to that point, because you write the 2011-2012 mass protests against electoral fraud in which Russian leftists were key participants, offered a brief resurgence, but the state struck back with manifold forms of repression, harassment, detention, blacklisting, surveillance, and manufactured crimes targeting nationalists, liberals, and leftists alike. So to what extent, then, is it even possible for the left to challenge power? Is it not that the vote was fixed in favor of Putin, but that the entire political system is? The entire political system is. I mean, there, this is why the dilemma of, you know, do you try to build an independent left movement or you de- decide to try to hook up with Navalny's movement is so crucial because the avenues and space for actual political participation and building any kind of political force are so narrow that you're kind of left with the options you have. I mean, I get a lot of criticism from, you know, online for saying, the Russian left needs to stand with Navalny in, in some respect, in some way. And, you know, the answer is, well, he's a nationalist. He's this, he's that. He's neoliberal. Well, yeah, that's all true. But uh, sometimes as, you know, opposition movements and leftists have to deal with the politics they have, not the politics they want. And my friends um, in Russia who are part of the left, who are mostly in the Russian socialist movement, for example, uh, they, they understand and see that they have very little choice. Uh, yeah, they they completely agree disagree with a lot of Navalny's politics, but nevertheless, I mean, he's able to bring out thousands of people in the street. So you have to deal with that somehow. So how much better would the the left be? How much better off would Russia be with Navalny in power instead of Putin? I mean, th- nobody knows. You know, people thought that Russia would be off with better off with Yeltsin in power, and look what they got. <laughs> people at the beginning, when Putin was was when became president, you know, named president of Russia and then elected, the American. You can go back and look at the American press. They thought Russia was going to be better with Putin too, um, and they were all very happy. You know, they they lib- labeled him a reformer and a liberal and all of this stuff. Well, you know, this is what they got. The problem is is that Russia doesn't need another Alexei Navalny. Right. They don't need another white horse guy on a white horse to save the system like they've had with Yeltsin and Putin. They need a wide, broad democratization of their politics and society. I mean, in my view, when it comes to Russia first, the Russians are going to have to fix it themselves and they're going to have to fix it according to the politics and culture of their of their country. And, you know, putting all your hope on one guy isn't going to really change much of the system uh, because the system is much more embedded uh, than one guy can fix. And you talked about, you know, you write about all these uh, protests and the mass arrests that were taking place. Uh, One of the reasons that Alexei Navalny cannot run for president is because he is a a convicted, uh, he's convicted of a previous crime. So how much did the arrests at the protests in 2011, 2012, criminalize the left and make its leaders ineligible for elections. Yeah, I mean, Udal Sov went to prison for, for four and a half years. Um, it's, 
it essentially crushed his organization. The tactics that the Kremlin used are actually really interesting because, you know, for Alexei Navalny, they, they put him on trial for all of these fraud charges. For some other liberal politicians, they house arrest them or they search them and kind of scared them into, you know, making peace with the regime. You can see this with Ksenia Sobchak, who, who ran for president this year as well. Uh, the left were, were raided and arrested and some fled the country. Um, and then they the, a chill just went through the entire political uh, opposition and then, of course, culminated with the assassination of Boris Nemtsov in 2015, uh, really put the lid on it. So um, the repression is, is really effective, um, but it's not necessarily just it's the way the Russian government does repression is it just makes your life difficult and, you know, throws you in jail or doesn't give you permits for protests or squashes your attempts to organize. Um, and this is the way, and then sometimes it uses violence. Is Putin also doing the same thing when it comes to any potential right-wing challenge, if there is any challenge of Putin from the right? Does he also focus on uh, anybody who is farther to the right of him that might be a potential challenger for him in the future? This is actually an interesting thing that I wish got more that got more attention, considering all of the rhetoric about Russia being fascist and nationalist. The thing is, is that the right, the street right, the kind of neo-Nazi anti-immigration, the far kind of ethno-nationalist Russian right, um, all of their leaders have been arrested too. Uh, you have, I think, there there's a couple of these guys who are leading. Some of these prominent movements, even during the the 2011-2012 protests, who are now in jail. Uh, so you do get a two pronged kind of the 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 government goes after the extremes. Um, the way it deals with those extremes on a daily level is far different. There's far more tolerance, I think, towards kind of right wing street nationalism than there is for the left. I mean, you can see this in terms of how it's persecuting uh, anti fascists youth today, I mean, including some pretty serious torture. But nonetheless, they do go after at least the leadership of those right-wing organizations. I mean, the Russian right, the street right, the organized right, is pretty much destroyed for all intents and purposes. Or they're co-opted in some, like the, the war in the Donbass was a way to divert a lot of that energy actually towards eastern Ukraine. So you get a lot of these people who are going and volunteering, or you did in 2014, 2015, a lot of you know Russian nationalists going and volunteering to fight with separatists in eastern Ukraine and things like this. So that and Crimea also let a lot of that steam out as well. But there still is a Russian nationalist right that actually doesn't like Putin at all, mostly because they either see him as uh, too friendly towards Jews because Putin has really good relationships with Israel and things like this. Or he's not nationalist enough. So where would you place, and I, I know that this is going to be misleading in some way, and you're going to have to explain why it is, because uh, where would you then place Vladimir Putin on a left-right-wing political spectrum? Is he a centrist right-winger? I mean, where, how would you describe him? In America or in Russia? In Russia. In Russia, he is... Um, a kind of center-right figure. And in the United he States, how would we view him? In the United States, he would probably be more on the Republican right before the Tea Party. <laughs> okay. So culturally conservative, 
maybe mildly uh, populist. I mean, he does have populist tendencies, but he's not flamboyant really too much about it. Uh, But on the uh, the other hand, his economic policies tend to be quite neoliberal for the most part, uh, particularly towards social services. So he, I, I would, I wouldn't say he's in the same camp as Trump, just because that's kind of a, a bad characterization. But I think he certainly would find a good place amongst the kind of Christian uh, right wing of, of politicians, mainstream politicians of America. You write the Russian left is mostly an activist-centered movement that tries to connect local struggles to larger issues of corruption, labor rights, ecology, political rights and freedom of speech, poverty and income inequality. Is corruption the leading concern of those who are opposed to or even those who support Putin? Is that the number one concern of uh, Russians today? I think it's it's definitely up there. Um, another concern, I think, is is issues of wages. Uh, and standard of living, I think that's growing as a concern. But corruption is really the one lightning rod uh, to really get people mobilized because uh, corruption is an everyday thing, you know, from the police to getting a driver's license all the way up to the big corruption, which doesn't hit you personally, but you can see that all of these rich politicians are somehow becoming richer and the social situation or the infrastructure of Russia kind of remains the same. Um, the, the daily corruption is, from my understanding, is getting better. There's less being extracted on a daily level. But, you know, it's really significant that when Alexei Navalny did this video report about Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, um, it was wildly popular. I can't re- I just heard a few days ago how many tens of millions of, of views on YouTube for this, this report he did exposing Medvedev is basically not one of the prince among thieves, as basically one of the thieves among all the other thieves. So it, and local corruption is really important too, because, so for example, when Navalny has these national protests where he's calling for people to have protests about corruption, and in other towns outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, there, people are protesting against local corruption, not necessarily about the corruption in, in Moscow, which they all understand exist, but they can't do much about it. Uh, but their local corruption is quite, the, the relationship between local politicians and business um, is, is, a, is a really clear thing for a lot of Russians who, who are politically engaged. So one of the things that you write about is how uh, some left-wing parties, some people on the left, are, are communist in name only and represent more a mixture of Soviet nostalgia and patriotism taken to the point of parody. When it comes to any Soviet nostalgia, what are they nostalgic for? What was it about the Soviet Union, at least that they believe, made life better than it is today, whether that's an accurate memory or not? Um, A lot of it is for a stability. Uh, This is something, of course, the Putin government uses repeatedly. But a lot of the nostalgia is actually for the 70s. Um, where you were guaranteed employment, you were, you know, allowed to go on vacation, and this is all paid for through your workplace. Um, it was basically a, a, the Soviet Union in the 70s, you know, between, you know, under Brezhnev, was essentially a paternal state. Um, 
And I think there's a there's a nostalgic view for that, that a lot of the, the daily hardships and disruptions, though this is not to say that they weren't in the 70s, but at least the memory is kind of an, of a golden age uh, in some respects. You know, also Russia on an international level, right? It was the time of detente. This was when the Soviet Union was at parity with the United States, but the, the Soviet Union and the conflict between America and Russia, though there it was kind of softened and Russia was, con- the Soviet Union was considered a partner in the global order. So, I mean, all of these things is, I mean, it's similar to how I think Americans imagined the 1950s in many respects. Interesting. Uh, You write that when it comes to the inability of challenging Putin, political divisions have finished the work repression couldn't. Disagreements disagreements over the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, Russia's annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass have compounded existing splits among leftists. Some groups which oppose the Maidan as a fascist coup support the Crimea annexation and view the Donbass as a proletarian struggle. These views place them closer to Russian nationalists in the Putin regime than to their potential comrades who see the Maidan as a popular uprising, the Russian government's action as imperialism. The polarization around Ukraine has made it difficult to maintain a middle position. How split is the entirety of Russia over Ukraine? And does that split continue and continue to grow? Uh, and I hate to make comparisons, but as it continued and continued to grow here in the U.S. over what took place in Vietnam, as well as what took place in Iraq? Uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian conflict uh, amongst, I think, the Russian population in general is, is not even an issue anymore. Um, I think, and, it, and when it was an issue in 2014 and 2015, I think the government was the, the Russian government was really effective in basically saying, "Look, this is what happens when you have revolution. It equals chaos." This is their whole line. The Russian government is rapid political change equals chaos, and they point to the Arab Spring. They point to Ukraine, um, and and they point to Syria. Um, so it, I think they were really effective. Now the Ukrainian situation, uh, you know, it still maintains a propaganda value in showing Ukraine as a total basket case to kind of show Russians, look, you have it good here. Things are stable. Um, You don't have, you know, fascists marching in the street. You don't have a war going on in the east, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I think it doesn't I don't think it really has any effect on the general political outlook of the population. You quote a woman by the name of uh, Daria Mitna, and she talks about uh, she's by the Committee of the United Communist Party. She's telling Novaya Gazeta, uh, we waited five years for the left front Sergei Udaltsov to be freed from jail and lead a broad left movement. But instead, he's going around carrying a briefcase for someone else. You explain that someone else Daria refers to as Pavel Grudinin, the strawberry oligarch who runs the Lenin State Farm, a so-called socialist oasis outside of Moscow. Grudinin became the Communist Party candidate after he won the left Front's online primaries. This put pressure on Gennady Zyoganov, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation's electoral dinosaur, to stand aside in the hope of injecting the Communist Party with new vigor. In Daria Mitna's view, why doesn't Grudinin represent that broad left movement she had hoped for? And why do you think Uzalsov then backed Grudinin? Um, he doesn't represent it because they are skeptical of his uh is his farm and his strawberry business, where he has all the trappings of kind of a socialist, 
Um, you know, his workers are paid well. They do get good services. Um, but, you know, Grudinin, it was discovered, has offshore accounts. Uh, most of his income actually comes from renting land to, you know, to um, businesses to to have their buildings and stores on. Um, they they are really skeptical of, of him for these reasons. Um, and I think the reason why Udolf Sov supported Grudinin is Udolf Sov wants to try to do two things. He wants to have some sort of united left. Um, and in the election cycle, Rudinin was really, you know, for all the criticism one may lay at him, um, he was the only really serious candidate amongst the, basically a, a group of jokers. I mean, he also had a bit of a kind of unseriousness too, but in terms of like an actual politician, at least he was serious to some extent. I mean, if you look at some of these debates, television debates on t- Russian television, none of which, of course, include Putin, it's a complete fiasco. Um, and so I think he wanted to at least try to use Grudinin's candidacy to bring together all left forces. Um, and then the other, I think, is just, you know, like in most places, the United States being one during during um, election season, you get more political talk. So by backing his candidacy, it opens up more space to to go speak to people, to have discussions about you know leftist politics or leftist positions. You have more visibility because Grudinin is on television; he's being interviewed. So I think in that sense, it's a very kind of you know instrumental backing. You're right. Udaltsov doesn't rule out cooperation with Navalny. The problem is Navalny and other liberals don't seem to want to cooperate with him. In an interview in the Daily Storm, Udaltsov called for a return to the alliance between the left liberals and nationalists of 2012. But when he reached out to Ilya Yashin, the liberal activist responded, you supported the annexation of Crimea. You are on Putin's side. And how can I work with you if you are such bad people? How accurate is that assessment of the left? To what degree is the left on Putin's side? Well, in terms of Udolf Sov, the the left front, the Communist Party, and some of these other smaller communist, more neo-Stalinist groups, they represent in Russia what's called the, the patriotic left. So they have trappings of, of nationalism. They have trappings of dreams of Russian great, you know, power status. They have even have dreams of Russia as an, as another, as an empire in the sense of, you know, basically all of these former Soviet states coming back together under some central Russian domination or confederation, if you want to be soft about it. So in that sense, they do have a problem. And, and a lot of members of or that wing of the left, which is unfortunately the, the majority, um, you know, saw Crimea as, as a restoration of Russian greatness. Um, they, they, they view the conflict in the Donbass as the, the, the Donbass proletariat, the factory workers, the miners uh, fighting against the liberals and the nationalists in Kiev. Um, so I, that left patriotism certainly pushes them more into a camp that aligns with the government than against it in this respect on, on various uncertain issues. Um, so, you know, the minority of the Russian left tends to be, you know, more West, Western oriented, um, in terms of its influence, it tends to be more theoretical and more interested in Marxist politics or Marxist theory. 
Um, it also tends to be more university students. So, you know, this divide, I think, um, is one of the things that I think will never actually bring a united left that that Dostal hopes for. This week, uh, President Trump said that Crimea is Russian because they speak Russian. And a lot of people have been making fun of that here in the United States, saying things like, well, then I guess Mexico belongs to Spain. How Russian is Crimea based on the fact that they speak Russian? Um, and the people in Crimea, the Russian, ethnic Russians in Crimea tend to see themselves as part of R- Russia, Russian civilization, Russian culture, Russian language. Um, but that's easy to do when you have uh, basically the Tatar population that lived there has been cleansed out. Uh, under Stalin, they were deported in 1944. Uh, they weren't really allowed to come back. They were dispossessed of their property. And even now, the, the Tatar um, people and activists in Crimea are under a lot of pressure and repression uh, for not towing the, the central government going along with Moscow's line. Um, I mean, I, I don't. I don't even. As as, a, as someone who's interested in in Russia, I don't even. Every time somebody says, "Well, they're Russian," my first question is, "What what does that even mean?" Um, okay, so you speak the Russian language, but you have people in Moldova that speak the Russian language. You have people in Estonia that speak the Russian language. You have people in Kazakhstan that speak the Russian language. Does that make it Russia? Not necessarily. Um, they may have some cultural affinity, but in terms of its actual sovereignty, uh, that, that's a big question. Um, I mean, the truth of the matter is that Russia annexed Crimea illegally. You know, it, it annexed land in Crimea just like the Israelis annexed land in the West Bank. <laughs> so, you know, I don't really see the political difference there. But I know I'm going to get emails right now from uh, some people who uh who are going to tell me that hey listen uh that it, what you just said is showing support for the far right of the Maidan movement that took place that started the Ukrainian uh war that is taking place right now it, it, so just so i know what to say it, just so that i don't have to get that email could you explain could you say why that doesn't show that you're supporting a far right wing uh revolution in the Maidan uh i don't I mean, look, my, my view on the Maidan is, is very complicated. Um, I, I, I view it as a, uh, an out protest and revolution that came from dissatisfaction of, uh, you know, a segment of the Ukrainian people, uh, particularly outside of eastern Ukraine, who, I mean, Yanukovych was an incredibly corrupt leader. I mean, if you're going to support Yanukovych, then you might as well support Trump, too. Um, he was thrown out. He left. Uh, the circumstances in which he left are quite murky. Um, it certainly was not a constitutional revolution, um, but most revolutions aren't. Uh, they were definitely right-wing elements in that revolution, very prominent ones. And you, you can see now in Ukraine, uh, you have right-wing gangs going on and, and destroying, uh, attacking Roma basically pogroms against Roma, beating up LGBT people, marching in the streets with all sorts of fascist and Nazi regalia. Unfortunately, it seems that Western press is only starting to wake up to this. You have an attempt by the government to, uh, you know, glorify uh, Ukraine's nationalist heroes, many of which engaged in slaughtering Jews and Poles. Um, 
yeah, okay, so I don't understand why saying Crimea was annexed illegally puts me in the right-wing government of Ukraine. It doesn't make any sense. The Russians annexed Crimea. Um, I don't understand why that's a pro- why it's a problem to say that. Well, when I get that email, I will forward it to you so you can understand yeah, the crazy. But, but but I should say at the same time, at the same time, you do have legitimate grievances in eastern Ukraine. Right. You do, and and this is the issue that by by saying that um, you know the the war in the Donbass is just is simply Russian aggression, which it is. Um, it's to not recognize that there are legitimate questions amongst Eastern people who live in the Donbass that need to be addressed by Kiev. Unfortunately, the propaganda war, and this is why saying I can be pinned as a supporter of Russian nationalists, and unfortunately it, it kind of drives me crazy that American leftists are so daft in this issue. Um, there are legitimate questions that need to be addressed by those, those people in Eastern Ukraine, and the Kievan government isn't doing that. And that is a major problem. I think, Unfortunately, hmm? I was just going to say, I think it's a desire for simplicity. Yeah, it's a desire for simplicity. And, and unfortunately, it's also just, you know, if I may say, it's somewhat ignorant. Right. <laughs> We've been speaking with Russia analyst Sean Guillory. See, I'll you get the email. You're going to get it, not me. So Russia yeah, analyst Sean Guillory is the uh, host of the weekly Sean's Russia blog podcast where he covers Eurasian politics, history, and culture. Go sh- to Sean's Russia blog Facebook page and share his interview that was blocked from boosting by Facebook. He's the author of the Jacobin article, Left in a Corner, that we've been discussing this morning. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean's Russia Blog, and you can find out more about Sean at Sean'sRussiaBlog.org. One last question for you, Sean, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Actually, it should have been that Maidan question, damn it. You write that uh, left-wing groups that don't directly hearken back Back to Soviet symbolism are younger with members in their late teens and 20s, as in the West, this new generation of young leftists will be crucial for reinvigorating Russia's leftist politics. Some groups are more Western-oriented, emphasizing issues of race, gender, sexuality, for example, and are social democratic in tone. Most engage in media and a handful are little more than online communities. Is the left then facing a global crisis? Is the left everywhere around the world trying to reinvigorate itself? Is Russia's left, this is more importantly, a microcosm of what is happening to the left globally? Yeah, I do. I think it is. A, it, I think you can make global uh, connections. Um, you know, the situation in all of these places are different. Uh, and this is um, part of my mission in, in trying to, you know, explain you know, give more information about the Russian left is to, one, build solidarity. I mean, Russian leftists are embattled and they want to hook up and connect with their comrades in the West and in the United States and in, in Europe. Um, they have better connections in, in Europe than they do the United States. Um, and, you know, I just actually was in Israel and met with a bunch of uh, Israeli socialists who have the same problem, uh, where they want to connect with uh, American leftists. And uh, they don't have access to them, partially because of BDS, but that's a whole other issue. But I do think it does. And in, 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 in Israel and Russia, they, I think they're you know, experiencing similar circumstances in terms of their access to the political system. Uh, so, you know, how to, I think, collectively bringing people together who are of left orientation globally, 
you can come together and talk about each other's situation, learn from each other's situation, and maybe collectively trying to find a way out. Sean, I really appreciate you being back here on This Is Hell. We had you on last July. It's been 11 months, and I apologize for that. We're going to have you on much more regularly. I really appreciate you being on the show, and your writing is fantastic, and people should go share your Facebook post at Sean's Russia blog, where you can find it on Facebook. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Talk to you next time. Take care. Hi, it's Bruce Alex. Chuck is out this week with back problems. We are running a clip show. We should be live next week. Fingers crossed. The U.S. media only seems to see Putin when they report on Russia and nothing beyond Putin. It's as if Putin is Russia, but is he and can Russia operate as it does now without Putin, which is something everyone should be considering as term limits and Putin's presidency will uh, will be ending Putin's presidency in 2024. Here to help us get past all of this Russia is Putin and Putin is Russia stuff, Tony Wood is author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tony. Thanks. My pleasure to be on here. Tony is a member of the editorial board of The New Left Review. Tony is author of 2007's Chechnya, the case for independence. And if you're wondering, that is the same new left review that we just uh, featured an article from with Dylan Riley on if Trump is a fascist. If you haven't heard that interview, go back shortly after our show. Go to thisishell.com and you can hear that interview in its entirety. Uh, you write, it is hard to think of Russia today without thinking of Vladimir Putin, perhaps more than any other major national leader. He personifies his country in the eyes of the outside world. How accurate is our vision, our depiction of Russia, when we see Russia as Putin and Putin as Russia, does that mislead us from understanding Russia more accurately than we should? Absolutely. I think that is the case. Um, And that's the main reason I gave the the book the title it has, that really, when I say Russia without Putin, I'm not calling for regime change. It's really more a question of, uh, it's an analytical gambit, right, that we need to look at Russia the country, and once you see beyond the personality who happens to be in charge of it now, you have to ask a series of very different questions, and the relative importance of Putin uh, you know, declines somewhat. You talk about his popularity, how well he does in the elections. Does Putin have a monopoly on the message within the media and to the public, or is he so popular that the media simply seeks him out? Is his popularity the result of a government mandate, or simply by popular choice? I think it's a bit of both. And I think partly because he's been the incumbent for so long that he just dominates the media landscape and the political landscape in a way that is quite hard for people to change. I think one thing that one does have to bear in mind, though, is the degree to which Putin's centrality is not something that has just organically happened, right? That it's a very curated uh, artifact. Uh, and a lot of people have put in a lot of time to create this image and reinforce it. So really, when the Western media is uh, overemphasizing Putin's importance there, they're not just distorting the view we have of Russia. They're buying into a very specific uh, political project to emphasize his importance as well. So do they emphasize his importance at their own risk? If these people are critics of Putin, are they empowering him by exaggerating his importance? 
I think so, very much. Yeah, I think it, it does tend to reinforce his power and, and to reinforce the sense that there is no one else who really matters in the Russian political landscape and that there are no alternatives. And I think this also has repercussions within Russia domestically. It's very hard for people within Russia to conceive of a country, of the country being run by anyone else. You know, there are, there's a whole generation of people who've grown up now knowing nothing but Putin, uh, and to the extent that it's very hard for people to imagine a replacement. But, um, but as you said at the, at the top of the segment, it's, it's, that's going to happen in 2024. So, so people need to start being able to imagine that. And part of that process is thinking what, what a Russia without Putin would look like, what it would happen if someone else were in charge. I was about to ask you how much of his popularity is tied to his lack of popularity in the West. And I still want to know the answer to that question. But uh, more importantly now, because of something you were mentioning earlier, how much does... Russiagate contribute to that popularity of Putin within Russia? Is his popularity tied to the lack of popularity elsewhere? And does that lack, is that lack of popularity fueled by Russiagate? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think in a general sense, uh, a Russian leader not being so popular in the West is, plays well domestically in Russia, certainly. I think there is this sort of generalized feeling that that Russia was too uh, too passive, too uh, disorganized, too gave too much to the West in the 1990s, and so any leader, Putin or otherwise, who had somehow reasserted Russia's presence in the 2000s was going to be popular, and so Putin certainly did that and was unpopular in the West as a result of that. So I think people in Russia, you know, speaking very broadly, tend to see the Western negative reaction to Russia's leaders as being uh, a rejection of. Uh, a stronger Russia, or at least stronger than it was in the 1990s. Whether Russiagate specifically plays into that, I'm less sure. I think one of the curious features of this whole Russiagate story is the degree to which uh, the Western media and the Western reading public is obsessively focused on Russia in a way that Russians are not obsessively focused with the West in the same uh, on the same wavelength. See what I mean? That. So this is one of those rare cases where people in a particular country are much less interested in the West than the West is in them on this particular point. Um, and I think at a certain point, the Russia Gate stuff may may rebound on Russia's current leaders if it gets in the way of the normalization with the West. If it means relations with the West just keep getting worse and worse and make any kind of rapprochement impossible, I think that will eventually be unpopular. How much is Putin a creation of Western policy toward Russia uh, following the Soviet the fall of the Soviet Union is is the government of Vladimir Putin to some to what extent is that blowback to Western policy in pushing capitalism and not pushing democracy very much on Russia in the 1990s? Yeah, this is a really good point. I mean, I, I try and develop this argument at, at greater length in the book. I mean, there's this general perception that. In the 1990s, you had the Yeltsin government, which was chaotic and somewhat disorganized, but nonetheless democratic and pushing through a free market transformation. And then all of a sudden in the 2000s, you get Putin, who is more autocratic, pushing through a more statist economic policy. And so there's this idea of a contrast between these two men and these being two very different periods. And actually, in the book, I try and uh, overturn that myth. I think really that Putin comes out of the Yeltsin era in a very direct you know, he's the direct successor. Uh, he continues a lot of uh, Yeltsin's work in terms of maintaining the uh, neoliberal economic policy and extending it in some uh, aspects. 
Uh, and so really what you see is a, is a shift of emphasis in some areas, but really what Putin does is consolidate a system that Yeltsin built. So I see a lot of very significant continuities uh, instead of a break between the two. And so to that extent, the Putin regime is really a product of those uh, free market reforms of the 1990s that threw up a, a nominally democratic government uh, that carried through a free market transformation and is very committed to uh, capitalism and the principle of private wealth. Uh, and that's what Putin is. He's committed to all of those things. Um, the other key thing to bear in mind, really, is that a lot of the uh, sort of autocratic features of the Putin era, the election rigging and so on, were very much present under Yeltsin. The difference is really that the West was uh, supportive of Yeltsin and, uh, you know, in many ways enabled his election rigging and various other kinds of authoritarian behavior. Uh, the obvious one being in 1993, there was a standoff between Yeltsin and the parliament. Yeltsin sent in tanks and literally bombed the parliament into submission. Uh, and that kind of behavior was widely applauded in the West. Uh, Putin has not done anything remotely as dramatic as that uh, in, in Russia domestically. Um, but he is obviously much more uh, criticized for being an authoritarian figure. But again, what I try and emphasize in the book is really the points of commonality and continuity between these two men in these two periods. So there are those here in the United States who just view Putin or Russia as Putin. Putin is Russia and that he is an authoritarian, uh, even to the point of being a dictator despite being elected. You were talking about vote rigging that happened during Yeltsin and that's continued on during the uh, Putin government. How legitimate is the leadership of Vladimir Putin, or is that even uh, an inappropriate word to use? Because what would you say to somebody who says this guy took over Russia? The only reason that he's in power is because he's an illegitimate leader. He fixed the system to put himself in power. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two aspects to this that are worth uh, bringing out. One is that, um, I mean, certainly I have no uh, sympathy or uh, positive views on Vladimir Putin himself or his policies. So I just should make that clear. None of this is said with any sympathy or support for the man. Um, but one thing that's notable about him is that he is uh, very much a sort of a stickler for the letter of the law, not the spirit of it. So if he has to win a democratic mandate, he will win a democratic mandate. But some of this is done through rigging. Uh, but essentially he will adhere to the letter of the Constitution. And this, for example, is why in 2008 uh, he left the office of president, became prime minister for four years, and then came back as president because that was what the Constitution said you had to do. He could have rewritten it, he could have done away with elections, but he's not that kind of authoritarian. If you like, he's a, he's a, a sort of literalist uh, authoritarian Democrat. I don't know if that's uh, a concept that makes much sense, but he does do what the law requires. But the other aspect that's, that's interesting is that there is undoubtedly a lot of election rigging in Russia. But on the other hand, I think a lot of the time, and certainly Putin himself, would win a clean election if there were no rigging. On current trends, as far as I can understand this, and as far as all the poll data and you know political science literature within Russia I've looked at, he does have a genuine support base that would probably enable him to win a free and fair election currently. Um, mainly because of a lack of viable other candidates who have a, a large organized political structure to carry forward a presidential campaign. There are challenges, certainly, and one of the curious features of the current regime in Russia is that they are very quick to stamp down any kind of challenge, no matter how small. 
Um, and from the outside, this seems to be somewhat irrational, right? That you have a challenger who may pull in, you know, 3% of the vote. Why not let them run? And then you have the appearance of a democratic contest, but you still win with 60% of the vote, say, for example. Um, but this is a system that is very keen to just not to make sure that no risks are taken. So any opposition at all, you've got to just clean it up and then proceed to hold uh, what looks like a democratic election. You have the facade of democracy without the substance, essentially. Um, and I think these are the sort of curious features of the regime where it will eventually run into some kind of problem where you uh, you have to rig something on a scale that just becomes unrealistic. Um, and in that regard, I mean, I don't want to send your, your listeners too far afield, but it's not, to me, doesn't seem wildly dissimilar to what happened in Mexico in the 1990s, for example, where the, uh, the PRI regime, you know, they stole a couple of elections, certainly very clearly rigged, and then eventually they they ran out of steam to a point where you could not rig an election on that scale and still, uh, you know, run the country. And I think something similar to that may happen with this regime eventually. You write by themselves. The These three words might be read as straightforward, and those are anything but Putin. Uh, these three are... Uh, Russia without Putin. These three words might be read as a straightforward call for regime change, as you were just saying. That is not at all the interim or the intention of this book. My argument, rather, is that Western media coverage and analysis of Russia are overly fi- fixated on Putin's personality. Is that fixating on personality? Is that merely the nature of the news media beast here in the U.S.? Is this an indictment? of the U.S. media focusing on personalities, not policies, especially when it comes to its international news coverage. Is this just the way that U.S. news media is, or is it in particular this way just with Putin? Um, I think it's a bit of both, certainly. There is a tendency in the media to, to, to focus on personalities, as you say, and these are much more convenient hooks. And this is also just the way our you know, celebrity-driven culture functions. And this is not just in the U.S., this is true in Europe, too. And, you know, and this is why you have so many countries now whose, poli- whose political landscape is being reduced to whatever surrounds a given individual, whether it's Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey or Duterte in the Philippines, all of these uh, quote-unquote strongmen have become the kind of obsessive focus of media attention. Um, some of that is, is definitely a generic feature of the way media works, I think, but I think it's particularly exaggerated in the case of Russia. And I think because Putin has been around for so long, it's just accumulated more and more uh, force, um, and it's become increasingly counterproductive, I think. Uh, one of the things I found while working on this book uh, was that really the, the general level of knowledge about Russia uh, at the moment is, I personally think, probably lower than it was during the Cold War. And I think if you stop and think how perverse that is, right, during the Cold War, these were systems that were... To, some significant degree closed off from each other. It was not that easy to travel between the Eastern Bloc and certainly Russia and the West. Uh, it was much more difficult to, to get visas and so on. And now, nominally, it's easier to go back and forth, but people are much less well-informed. And so I wanted to try and, you know, do my bit to reverse that lack of understanding, but also just to describe it, that you have this really perverse outcome where the more Russia, you know, supposedly has joined the world since the end of the uh, of the Cold War, the less we've understood it. You write the obsession with Putin's persona effectively reduces a whole range of political, economic, and social questions to the swings of one individual's mood or morality. At best, this is highly misleading, distracting us from the broader structural forces 
that have done so much to shape Russia's fortunes in the last few decades. What are those broader structural forces? And, and are we intentionally ignoring those broader structural forces? What do we miss when we ignore those? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think one thing that people perhaps, you know, understand on, an in, on a general kind of intuitive level but haven't really been able to follow through the consequences of is the, the, the sheer uh, extent of the transformation that Russian society has been through in the last 20, 30 years. This is a really significant major upheaval uh, that's affected everyone alive, or at least everyone who was born and living, you know, in 1991. Really, it's not just a, a change of regime from communist to capitalist. This is a, a total transformation of your whole day-to-day working life, your interactions with other people, a really deep change in culture, but also in class identity. I spend a lot of time talking about changes in uh, class structure in Russia over that period of time. Uh, and so this is a really, really profound transformation. Um, and I think that has all kinds of interesting side effects in terms of how Russians perceive themselves, both day to day, both uh, you know, in their individual lives, but also in their collective uh, national life, like what kind of country they think they are, what role they play on the world stage. I mean, more or less every, uh, every stable point of orientation for, for ordinary Russians has been taken away and they've had to find a replacement. So part of the process for the last 20, 30 years has really been uh, reorienting themselves in the world. Um, and at the same time as that sort of systemic change has been happening, there's also been a lot of other changes that are very significant. For example, uh, economic shifts, very major. You know, this was a, until you know the late 1980s a major world industrial power. Admittedly, the industry was crumbling already and somewhat in decline, but nonetheless, Russia has been through a very rapid deindustrialization. Um, and at the same time, it has uh, become increasingly dependent on exports of raw materials. Um, which has two consequences that I think are just briefly worth mentioning here. One is that um, it has very, uh, it, it makes the whole economy more volatile, uh, more dependent on swings and ups and downs in the global uh, commodity markets. That's number one. But secondly, you know, the, the country's main source of income does not employ that many people. Um, so this is, you know, the whole of the fate of the economy is really tied to a sector, a sector, excuse me, in which most people are not employed. So it has this sort of, you know, at least again in the Soviet Union, industry was a major employer. Some, it was some very large proportion of the population was employed in industry. And so the fate of industry, you could see that day to day. Whereas now the economy has become somewhat more kind of externalized to people's daily life and much more uh, alien and inexplicable, which I think has contributed to the disorientation that people feel at this time. Who, To whose benefit does... Russia operate and and I know that that might sound like a a leading question in some way that you know would somebody ask that of the United States you know to uh, whose benefit does the U.S. operate and I would say that the U.S. operates well uh, for those who work within the market and the better you work within that market and the better your ancestors worked within that market the better the market works for you and so the U.S. operates. Uh, at the benefit of those who work well within the market, I guess. Uh, to whose benefit does Russia operate? Um, I think that there's, there's two different criteria, really. I mean, on that level that you're describing, I mean, there is an element of that, that you, you've had a, a, 
uh, a market economy take root in Russia uh, in which, yeah, people who work well within that particular market framework are, are rewarded uh, to some extent that that's true. But then also the those opportunities within the market are very closely entangled with other forms of power, other forms of access to political power or connections. So there is a kind of an informal and formal uh, set of factors that weigh on people's fortunes. And so a lot of the people who've done very well have been people who had some prior connection to uh, a factory or like some sort of uh, connection in the Communist Party apparatus, and they managed to gain ownership of the factory, say. Or there's a lot of lingering connections with the old order uh, still hovering around. And then there are also people who managed to uh, do well out of the chaos of the 1990s who made their way you know, in the cracks of the system, essentially doing things that were semi-legal or not at all legal, um, and who have since managed to uh, legitimize their fortunes, if you like. Um, and then, you know, there are people who have enriched themselves just thanks to good luck of, you know, they, they managed to uh, oh, operate a concession of some kind or work in a bank, and that bank got hugely enriched thanks to some particular deal. I mean, I don't want to suggest that anyone who's done well in Russia is, is involved in some kind of crooked dealings, because in a way, that is how the market works, right? It rewards disproportionately on a uh, seemingly irrational basis, right? <laughs> and and I think some of that has happened in Russia. The real difference is the, the closeness of the relationship to political power. And I want to emphasize that this is something a lot of analysis sees as being particular to the Putin era. But actually, this has been true throughout. This is true in the Yeltsin era as well, that a close relationship with political power was what enabled people to become rich. The difference really between Yeltsin and Putin in that respect is that it's just different people being enriched, but it's the same mechanism. You're right. Putin did not create this system, not, nor will his uh, removal from the scene alter its fundamental character. In order to understand Russia today, the West needs to shake off its obsession with Putin and look at what lies beyond the Kremlin walls. It needs, in other words, to learn to see Russia without Putin. All right, so what is that system? I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I have a different way of asking it. What is the system that he is currently operating, that he is currently being the administrator of? You mentioned how he has, uh, to a certain extent, unified the dominant class. He's unified his political party. He has an organization, a very large organization. Uh, that organization has a level of competence. All of these are characteristics that Dylan Riley was just uh, mentioning on our show in our discussion of whether Trump is fascist. He said that Trump isn't fascist. He doesn't have the organization. He doesn't have the competence. He's not trying to get the dominant class together. He's uh, breaking apart, apart the party. Uh, there is no chance for mass mobilization in the United States that is necessary for the kind of fascism, at least from 1922 to 1939. So to what degree and can we even say that this is fascism? After all, he has got the dominant class and his political party to have unity, and he has the organization and the competence to install fascism. Well, I would found a note of caution on that, too, actually, in Russia, because one of the, the characteristic features of the Putin system uh, throughout, but also the 90s under Yeltsin too, was that this is a system which requires democratic legitimation, but is not overly keen on encouraging democratic participation. And that means 
They want people to turn out and vote when they're supposed to every four years, but they're not really interested in building a genuine mass movement. Uh, and so it's a curious feature that Putin has been in power all this time. And, you know, they've set up this the ruling party, United Russia, has existed since uh, late 2000, early 2001, um, and, and, you know, controls the majority of seats in the parliament, uh, not just at the national level, but also at the regional level, the different regional parliaments. But there is markedly less enthusiasm among the Russian public for the party than there is for Putin as a person. Um, and so as a ruling party, this is a very, uh, I would say, not a successful entity. It doesn't have any real mass appeal. I feel like there's no real loyalty among the public to the party. They just vote for it because it happens to be the ruling party. But um, I mean, interestingly, uh, you know, there were just some elections held in Russia in September, uh, regional elections and local elections. And considering this is a ruling party that controls all access to, you know, the media, all the finances, it's the incumbent everywhere, they really perform very poorly and turnout is also always very low. So looking back to the criteria that you mentioned about having a kind of a mass movement, this is not, the Putin system doesn't really have a mass movement. It has, you could describe it, I, I think, as maybe mass acquiescence but it's really not the same as the kind of energized mass support base that would be required for a, a fully sort of fascist project. So that's, that's one thing that I think is very different. Um, and another thing is that the Putin regime really re relies on apathy to some extent. It doesn't rely on any kind of uh, mass engagement. The more apathetic the population, the better, as long as they just turn out and do what they're supposed to do every four years. Um, but the second thing I think is that really the, the Putin regime is not fascist for another important reason, which is that, um, I mean, fascism to some extent requires a kind of coherent ideological project as well, a coherent vision of some kind of corporatist transformation, if you like. I mean, in, in my understanding of this. And I think one of the interesting features of, again, of the Putin era is how ideologically uh, empty it has been. You know, uh, that it, it really is, it's a vast, it's a system that can contain a lot of different ideological currents. And Putin can tilt between these different currents depending on, you know, the, the, what is more powerful at the time, depending on the global economic climate. So in his early phase, in the early 2000s, he was much more markedly neoliberal. Uh, in the mid 2000s, he had a kind of slightly more statist turn. Uh, increase in state ownership in, in certain key sectors. Um, when he came back in 2012, he had a much more uh, nationalist ideological uh, emphasis. Um, but all of these emphases continue to coexist within Putinism, if you like, represented by different factions within the government. So this is a very sort of plural, and I think not especially coherent project, ideologically speaking. Um, and I think that marks it out from fascism as well, that there is no in a way, it suits Putin not to decide which of these uh, tendencies to go for. He wouldn't go all out for any of them. So do you, would you characterize the debate within Russia today, the political uh, debate within Russia today, between whether they should be pursuing statism, nationalism, or neoliberalism? Is that kind of the heart of the Russian political debate today? Yeah, I think, well, it's certainly at the elite level, uh, there's a question of what kind of state they want whether they wanted to push on with a kind of much more, an even more neoliberal state, you know, really cut back the whatever is left of 
the social welfare infrastructure of the of the state. And that's something that they've, that they've been pushing on with a bit. You know, over this summer, they announced an increase in the pension age, uh, and they've been doing all kinds of other sort of austerity measures in Russia. This is called optimization, which involves closing hospitals, cutting back uh, doctor salaries, um, also in education, a lot more uh, what is called user fees, i.e. education is notionally free, but you pay more to use it. Um, so there's been a kind of neoliberal push within Putinism that's been consistent. And I think that, again, this is one of the things I think people overlook because they're busy looking at Putin and his KGB background and seeing him as some kind of, you know, return to the USSR. And that's not at all what's been happening on the ground in Russia. It's very much a, a, a neoliberal regime, I would say, with other ideological elements. Um, the current debate, or certainly, again, within the elite level, is to do with how much money Russia should be spending on its military versus some kind of modernization spending on infrastructure, health, education. Um, the, the, and this is one reason why the confrontation with the West, while it scores Putin certain points domestically, is not in their interest in the long run because they have to spend so much more on their military uh, as part of that confrontational stance. And at a certain point, that becomes uh, massively counterproductive for the country in the long run. And so there are these debates within the government. Uh, Putin, uh, his former finance minister, Alexei Kudrin, who is now in some free-floating sort of think tank role, but clearly still close to the government, he has been promoting, on the one hand, more neoliberal measures, increasing the pension age. But on the other hand, he's been saying, we don't need a military budget this size. What we need is to spend on roads, railway, infrastructure, and education. And so that that really is where the future of the system will be played out. Will they, you know engage in some useful modernization spending, or are they going to be doomed to a kind of confrontation with the West that eats up a chunk of the military budget? At the moment, it does seem like, you know, they have actually, again, this is passed over in much of the, the Western coverage, but they have cut the military budget two years running now. Uh, and the last cut was by something like 20%. It's quite significant. Um, so the question is whether that continues in that direction or whether there's a new spike in spending for some other reason. You write that the system's main priority has been to defend capitalism in Russia, if necessary, at the expense of democracy as the consistent resort to election as the consistent sorry consistent resort to election rigging from the 1990s. The present demonstrates here in the U.S. and especially on this show, we hear from critics who argue that the U.S. puts profits before people. Is Russia the epitome of what the left criticizes about the right here in the U.S.? Is Russia the epitome of putting profits before people? Uh, I mean, yeah, not the only epitome. I think this is a consistent feature of a lot of governments worldwide, um, but it certainly does does epitomize that, that tendency. I mean, I guess one thing that, that's curious to me is, is that Within the current climate, obviously, there's so much hostility between Russia and the West and a great deal of, uh, of contrast, supposedly, between these systems. But actually, I feel like they have a lot more in common than people realize. Um, and again, this was brought home to me. I was in Russia over the summer, and I attended a lot of these protests against the increase in the pension age. Um, and one of the things that's clear is that the, the IMF has been sending missions to Russia to run the rule over their economic policy. And the IMF is delighted with Russia. You know, they come back and give them these glowing reports about the macroeconomic policy and what they're doing with pensions and so on and so forth. Um, so really, the, in terms of the, the underlying uh, economic agenda of these states, Russia is much closer to the West than many people would realize. 
very much closer to the West. You write many of uh, Putinism's worst features are rooted in the socioeconomic order that has been in place since the fall of communism. How much is the current kind of capitalism that Russia is experiencing? How much is that a creation of the West? Did the United did, did the West, did the U.S. and the rest of the West not bring democracy and capitalism as much to Russia as they brought the version of capitalism uh, of its era, that they brought neoliberalism to Russia? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think there is this sort of consistent uh, emphasis in Western coverage of Russia on the idea that Russia's, transform, uh, Russia's transition to capitalism has been somehow incomplete, and that so what Russia has is not really capitalism, or it's capitalism somehow mitigated by remnants of the Soviet system, you know, uh, nostalgia for communism and, and all of that. Whereas what I see is actually what Russia has is capitalism, and actually a lot of the features that people see as, as negative authoritarian culture, for example, those are actually features of the capitalism that Russia has. They're not, you know, vestiges of the past that are in the way. On the contrary, they're, they're part of the, of the way that capitalism was implanted in Russia in the 1990s. And the West absolutely played a very prominent role, not only in supporting Yeltsin and helping him maintain his power and extending his term in office, for example, as many of your listeners will know, the U.S. played a direct role in stealing the 1996 Russian presidential election. But actually, on a very uh, granular level, um, there were U.S. advisors writing legislation for the Yeltsin government. Like a lot of the legislation uh, that privatized Russian industry was written by U.S. advisors to the Russian government. So uh, how much, you know, you talk about this kind of relationship that Russia thought that they were going to have with the United States and with the West in the post-Soviet era. And then the West thought that they were going to have a different kind of relationship. You call this a, a one-sided fantasy of Russia, that it was going to be a partner with the West and the U.S., Instead of being partners in global capitalism, how did the U.S. and the West view what their post-Soviet relationship would be with Russia? Well, this is an interesting question. I mean, I think I'm not totally clear what the—I think the West had different ideas that were in play about how to deal with Russia, um, and it's really the more aggressive vision that has won out. There was initially an idea uh, that that the West could— incorporate Russia as some kind of subordinate partner, right? Whether it would not be part of NATO or the EU, but it would be in close association with those structures as a kind of outside partner. Um, but I think there was also a very uh, a powerful body of opinion, mainly within the U.S. foreign policy establishment, but also in European capitals that saw Russia as uh, inherently an antagonist, that sooner or later there would be antagonism. And the question is, one had to, you know, how to prepare for that. And you should definitively exclude Russia from those structures because it was going to, you know, ruin them or uh, be a spoiler within them at some later date. And that second current of opinion is the one that won out. It's worth thinking back to um, the expansion of NATO when that first began in the early 90s, that there was a current of opinion within the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment that was against NATO expansion. And this included uh, George Kennan, the original architect of containment. Uh, he called it a fateful error, uh, essentially that this would needlessly antagonize Russia and just set up the same kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, antagonistic structure that had obtained during the Cold War. 
when there was an opportunity to have some some different kind of relationship. Um, so that's that has has been the the Western sort of tilt is is towards a more aggressive view that that sees Russia as outside of whatever structure the West has. Um, the problem really is that that the West also does not want Russia to align with China or India or these other powers that are not sort of within Europe. So I think the real contradiction in Western policy towards Russia, or or rather the the aspect of Western policy that makes it particularly difficult to see how this is going to get better, is that there is really no place where Russia can be fitted fitted comfortably. Uh, there is no role for Russia that I can see that the West is willing to accept, except as a uh, fully subordinate power. And unfortunately, I think no democratically elected Russian leader, Putin or anyone else, would be able to carry forward that policy. So I think we are going to be stuck in some kind of antagonistic uh, relationship with Russia for a while, unless the West really rethinks where it thinks Russia should fit in the world. You write, we need to discard several of the core assumptions behind most discussions of Putin's Russia. First, there is the widespread notion that Putin has overseen a nostalgic return to Soviet times, reversing the market reforms and democratization carried out by Yeltsin in the 1990s. And as we've discussed already, that's not the case. But this week, Newsweek reported a higher percentage of Russians regret the collapse of the Soviet Union than at any other time since 2004, according to a new survey by the Lovada Center, a Russian nonprofit organization. Today, 66% of Russians surveyed say that they regret the end of the Soviet Union and the fall of communism. Many Russians said that they regret losing the single economic system that existed in the Soviet Union, while others say that they miss living in a great world superpower. Older respondents express the most nostalgia. So to what degree? I mean, here we have Newsweek telling us that Russians, all they want is to be uh, go back to the era of the Soviet Union. To what degree is Russia and is Putin taking them back to the area, the era of being a Soviet, of being the Soviet Union, of being a world power again? Yeah, this is an interesting question, like the, the degree to which this nostalgia um, has any real political consequences and has any uh, actual embodiment in policy, if you like. I mean, I think certainly the fact that Putin has reasserted Russia's relevance on the world stage, that, that is a key part of his popularity. The idea that, that whether or not Russia gets on with other countries, they at least have to take account of its interests. That is something that I think is widely popular. And again, not just Putin, but any Russian leader who did that would, would gain popularity as a result of that. In terms of actual nostalgia for the Soviet Union, I think some of this, um, I think one has to remember, um, going back to what I was talking about earlier, that the degree of social transformation that this country has been through in the last 30 years, certainly that's, that's taken up a lot of uh, a lot of Russian people's lifetimes at the moment, um, that they have been through that degree of social transformation, but at the same time through a kind of national crisis in terms of uh, the collapse of an empire, effectively. What is this country's role on the world stage? Uh, and and there's, a, there's been a, an increasing disproportion between that memory of uh, the importance of, of the Soviet Union, the scale of it, uh, its superpower status on the one hand, and on the other hand, Russia's current capacities, which are massively uh, lowered. And it's actually, you know, in global terms, it's, it's economically a mid-ranking uh, power, along with many others, militarily much diminished. So there's this mismatch between the memory of what they used to be 
and uh, the current capacities. And what I would say is that, you know, as someone who grew up in the UK, this sort of post-imperial syndrome is very common. Uh, and, and certainly, I think Britain, France, uh, other imperial powers have not dealt with this at all well either. There's a lot of uh, uh, political consequences that flow from this inability to handle the end of empire. And you could even see Brexit as part of that phenomenon. So I think Russia is not alone in having these difficulties in, in, in adjusting to a changed role in the world. And I, to some extent, I feel like this nostalgia really reflects uh, the difficulty of adjustment rather than being an actual program. I think if a politician arrived and said, yes, let's restore the Soviet Union, but we'll have to go and invade all these countries to do it, I don't think that would be popular. Uh, I mean, a real indication of this is the fact that um, the war with Ukraine was not popular in itself uh, in Russia. The, certainly the Putin regime successfully portrayed uh, the post-Maidan government as supposedly a group of fascists and, you know, in the pocket of the West and so on and so forth. And that kind of antagonistic propaganda played well. But the actual military side of this conflict was not at all popular because Russians, with whatever uh, historical complexities and uh, contradictions, see themselves as being very closely tied to Ukrainians. They're very closely into, you know, a lot of intermarriage, a lot of movement between these spaces. And the idea of waging war in order to regain territory, I think, would be very alien to most Russians these days. So it's a, it's really, it's not a nostalgia that has an outlet in a political project, I would say. It's, it's a more, uh, it is about adjusting to Russia's new place in the world and regretting the loss of power, I think. And again, in global comparative terms, they're having difficulty, but I think they're not having as much difficulty as the UK has had you know, since uh, decolonization. Just a couple more questions for you, Tony. Is a new Russian revolution inevitable? And will it happen a lot sooner and easier than everyone thinks? Or does, not necessarily Putin, but the system that Putin works within have such a hold on Russia that the potential for it to be challenged is almost, you know, impossible? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think uh, it depends what you mean by revolution uh, to some extent, right? Whether you mean just the overthrow of a regime or whether you mean some massive sort of social upsurge of a kind of 1917 type. I think that kind of social revolution is not currently on the cards in Russia. I think um, the society is much more atomized uh, and more uh, apathetic than, than that kind of social situation would would suggest. Um, and I think for the present the regime does have a, a solid grip on uh, the political landscape, the, the, uh, the opportunities for political expression of uh, opinions contrary to the current regime are very limited. Um, but that being said, one of the interesting features of this regime is that it is on the one hand, it's, seeming, it's seemingly very solidly anchored. But on the other hand, I think it is actually quite brittle in some ways that for the reasons I was saying earlier, that it doesn't rely on mass mobilization or mass engagement so much as uh, mass acquiescence. Um, and I think if you have a, a regime that is sort of low intensity like that, it doesn't take that much for opinion to flip. If there is suddenly a more compelling alternative, some other project, some other leader figure or party or collective that promises uh, something more coherent and tempting for people, then I think opinion could shift pretty rapidly. So the question really is, is, is 
what the future of this particular system holds, with or without Putin at the top, is whether it's headed for some kind of uh, more turbulent end uh, and its replacement by some kind of you know interim uh, coalition government that has to work out a new political structure, or on the contrary, whether there is just a democratic a transition of some kind, as I was describing to your listeners early, as in the case of Mexico, when the PRI lost power in the year 2000, and it was the opposition party that won with uh, Vicente Fox. So you could imagine that this kind of, uh, the, the Putin system would just run out of steam somewhat, and that would create space for a coherent political alternative to develop that would then be able to take power democratically. Um, I think the latter scenario uh, seems more likely to me of the two I've just laid out. But on the other hand, it's true that more likely than either of those is the continuation of this system uh, on some indefinite basis uh, and, you know, in, in more or less successful version of what it's doing now. So uh, maybe that's not a satisfactory answer, but I think those are the three options we're, we're going to see. Tony, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Tony Wood. He is author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. He's a member of the editorial board at New Left Review. And if somebody has been just annoying you on a regular basis about this Russiagate thing, this is the book you need to get them for the holidays so they have a better understanding of Russia. Again, Tony Wood is the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. One last question for you, Tony. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. This one's a little bit silly, but uh, is Putin's Russia... The Russia that Ayn Rand always wanted. <laughs> yes, I actually think so. That's an easy question, though. That's, that's not a question from hell at all. I think she'd love it. So sweet. All those fans of the Fountainhead who are listening right now, you should move to Russia. It's just waiting there that's for right. it. Who is John Galt? I'll tell you who he is. Vladimir Putin. That's who he is. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Tony. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Hi, it's Bruce or Alex. Chuck is out this week with back problems. We are running a clip show. We should be live next week. Fingers crossed. 100 years ago, the Russian Revolution and its reverberations were felt through history, and they are felt through history to this day. I know it's taboo to discuss the Russian Revolution in the U.S., and it's even more verboten to actually learn something from the Russian Revolution here in the U.S. Here to tell us why the Russian Revolution is still important, how it happened, why it failed, and explain that it can happen again. Award-winning author China Mieville has a new book out October, the story of the Russian Revolution. Welcome to This is Hell, China. And you can see why live radio can be hell when I put my notes in the wrong place. Thank you so much for being on the show with us this week. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we recently spoke with Jody Dean about her introduction to a new printing of the Communist Manifesto by Pluto Press. While the reaction to that interview was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly positive, we did get far more negative responses than we usually do with any of our on-air conversations. Most of the complaints we got were simply based on the idea that we shouldn't even discuss the Communist Manifesto because communism failed. And therefore, why discuss it? What do we miss in our understanding of revolution? How to cha challenge authoritarianism and the way a hopeful idea can even lead to authoritarianism when we ignore the Russian Revolution and dismiss its history? 
Well, I mean, uh, the idea that uh, that something like, you know, this kind of radical desire for emancipation is, you know, somehow uh, impolite or dangerous to think about is obviously one of the most horrifying pieces of uh, sort of thought crime legislation that we that we live with um, in the modern day. Um, what's fascinating going back to the Russian Revolution, I mean, one thing that's important to say is quite apart from any politics, it's also just an extraordinary story. It reads like a thriller when, you, when you're reading the history of this. Um, but of course, it is shot through with um, this incredibly moving and powerful uh, desire for, as I say, fundamental radical change, not just a bit of tinkering, um, but an attempt to actually kind of fundamentally reconfigure um, the nature of society and, and, and to do away with capitalism. Now, in terms of, you know, the, the history that I've tried to write focuses on the months of that year itself, 1917, from February to October, when there were two, two revolutions at each end of the year. Um, but of course, that kind of ghost from the future of the, the catastrophe that happened later, uh, it kind of casts a shadow backwards. And I do engage with it in the, in the epilogue of the book. Um, and my, my basic line is that I'm, I'm very happy to have a kind of serious argument and debate uh, including with you know right-wing historians who are fundamentally opposed to the revolution about what happened. The one thing I find incredibly irritating is the refusal to have a serious discussion with it, and instead to kind of wave wave the hands and say something like you know revolutions always fail or it's a noble aspiration, but it, unfortunately they're always doomed to eat their children. This kind of evasion of any kind of serious engagement is much much worse than an actually uh, than an actually serious thoughtful attack on the revolution, speaking as someone who finds it very inspiring. And you, I'm glad you mentioned the thought police, because I often get a sense of thought police saying, when it comes to the Russian Revolution, or when it comes to the Communist Manifesto, or when it comes to anything about socialism's history, uh, that there's nothing to see here when it comes to socialism. What is lost, especially yeah. in the American worldview, or any worldview, when you equate socialism with authoritarianism, as is done with Soviet communism here in the U.S., thus dismissing it as an area of interest or study? Well, I mean, there's a certain kind of um, parallel evolution in the, you know, from the kind of uh, 1930s at least on through till the, well, I would say the 1980s, but actually on to today, a kind of convergence between Stalinism and mainstream liberalism and conservatism in in the states and in Britain and elsewhere, which is to agree that the 1917 revolution, Leninism, um, the program of the uh, revolutionaries, leads inexorably to Stalin and and the Stalinist states and and systems. And on the one hand, you have those who are sort of the apparatchiks of that system, saying, and that's a good thing. And on the other hand, you have the apparatchiks of the uh, equally corrosive and toxic alternative system saying that's a bad thing, but they're agreeing on that fundamental dynamic. And I think that, again, as I say, simply for the sake of intellectual honesty, irrespective of your own politics, one has to unpick that. One has to open that black box and actually say, what are the dynamics by which this extraordinary sort of uh, explosive carnivalesque of emancipatory yearning of 1917 um, becomes... Uh, degraded and corroded um, in the aftermath, because you can identify particular uh, dynamics, particular pressures, particular constraints. Um, and of course, we can debate about 
about how those exactly worked. But the point is to be concrete about the historical story of that year and of what happened after that year. So what you miss if you simply wave your hands and say, you know, the aspiration for betterness led to totalitarian despotism, what you do is you you operate as a kind of border police saying that you as a as as a human being, as humanity, you will be punished for the aspiration to have a better and dignified life. The aspiration for emancipation, the universe will punish you for that. And that is a truly sadistic political doctrine. And there's a lot more that we wouldn't understand about the world as it's taking place today if we didn't analyze and study the Russian Revolution. But uh, recently you, uh, because the New York Times is so limited in uh, printing space, uh, they asked you, persuade someone to read your book October in less than 50 words. Why they had that in their paper, which has tons of space to get your response, I have no idea. But your answer was, the narrative of the Russian Revolution is an urgent and strong strange as that of any novel. And October is the key political event of the 20th century. We need its memory in these bleak, sadistic times. This is an attempt to tell the astonishing, inspiring story. And as you've already said, the story is very inspirational to you. What's the inspiring story within the Russian Revolution that could give us a feeling of hope for today's bleak times as you see them? I think the the inspiration for me is um, uh, partly simply about seeing uh, what happens when you know a mass of people um, at the beginning of the year, unbidden by any uh, any rulers, unbidden by any kind of um, activists, certainly initially, reach a point where they say enough is enough. We have the right to live like dignified human beings. We have the right not to be treated like dirt by this system and uh, and oppose it and rise up. And uh, and take control of it, take control of the system, change it fundamentally, throw away the um, the vestiges of the old regime. That fact of people, if you like, grabbing history by the scruff of the neck and attempting to exercise their own political agency um, is incredibly inspiring. Because notwithstanding, of course, all the things that happened later, but how can it not be inspiring given that we live in a in a culture and a history uh, which constantly informs us and insists that we do not have the right to control over our own lives. You know, for all the kind of Horatio Alger nonsense and all the kind of um, uh, sort of sanctimonious notions of the American dream, one of the, to, to take just this country for an example, um, you know, one of the interesting things about that sort of ideology is that I think fewer and fewer people even believe it. It, it, it. it becomes a kind of lip service. Like people know that people do not have a control over their own lives, nor do they have the right to control over their own lives. The mass abstentionism from, uh, you know, voting, for example, I think it's really a kind of slander to call that apathy. I think what that is, is a perfectly rational sort of um, uh, protest against the fact that that, that this is not, in fact, uh, for the great majority of people, a way of taking any kind of control or improving their own lives. So when you have a year in which repeatedly across an enormous empire, um, millions of people from all kinds of different ethnicities, from all kinds of different backgrounds, workers and peasants and soldiers and men and women and Muslims and Jews and, you know, just like all these different people, are suddenly insisting that they have the right to have some control over their own lives. 
let alone trying to kind of dispense with this system that has told them they don't have that. That sense of agency and, and, and insurgent dignity is incredibly inspiring to me. Today, what, how would you rate the uh, state of citizen control over our world? Oh, um, I mean, it's very, very low. I mean, one of the things that I think we've seen um, in a lot of political actions recently, uh, some in a kind of, you know, broadly sort of progressive direction, but unfortunately an awful lot in the other way, what we've seen is a kind of, I think, a kind of rageful protest against the absolutely true fact, which is not just that people do not have serious, meaningful control over their own lives, but that they live in a system which is telling them very impatiently they don't have the right to that control and that their job is to shut up and um, accept the place allotted to them by their betters. So, no, I think I think that um, there are, of course, uh, strong drives to kind of take some control. There are groups and people and so on who are doing heroic work. But the fact is that we live in a system that um, that, that does everything it can, I think, to abnegate the the political agency of, of the great majority of people. You wrote in The Guardian, besides anything else, the socialist uprising in Russia in October 1917 is an extraordinary story. The culmination of the transformative months months of that year, beginning with February, and the abrupt popular overthrow of Tsar Nicholas II and his regime. It's all intrigue and violence and loyalty and treachery and courage. We recently spoke with Ralph Nader, and Ralph argues that it doesn't take much to make change happen, that the powerful are far more precarious than we may think. Last January, we spoke with the journalist Stefania Marizzi, who had just interviewed Julian Assange while describing uh, the success WikiLeaks has had in getting the secrets of the powerful into the public. And despite being threatened, WikiLeaks has yet to stop. So Assange said, elephants, it seems, can be brought down with string. Perhaps there are no elephants. Prior to February 1917, how certain was Tsar Nicholas II's hold on Russia? Was his hold on power far more precarious than supporters on the opposition even realized? Oh, I think, I mean, at that point, there was very little question that uh, the system would have to change, that, that the system, you know, could not maintain itself in the way it had been going along. And people were saying that perfectly explicitly. And I don't just mean people on the left. I mean, you have uh, liberals and even a lot on the right who, who were saying at the time that, you know, uh, that this system has, you know, something dramatic has to happen. They certainly didn't have the February, let alone the October Revolution in mind. But what they did know was that the system as it, as it had maintained itself was, was sclerotic and was falling apart. One of the things about that is at that time in particular, the, the Tsarist regime that had been in place in various different forms for like 500 years up until um, February 1917, in 1917 itself, Nicholas II, it wasn't just that it was, uh, you know, a brutal and uh, violent and repressive regime. It was also, within its own terms, a really stupid and ill-run one. So, you know, if you were going to be uh, an oppressive, despotic, absolute leader, you wouldn't want to do it like he was doing it because he was really bad at it. So it was both horrible and incompetent. Um, and what that meant was that there was very little, there was very little question in people's minds that something had to happen. And there were a variety of dreams and ideas about what it could be. You know, you shift to a, 
a constitutional monarchy, you shift to a kind of liberal, bourgeois, democratic state, whatever, all sorts of different ideas. Um, one of the particularities of, of 1917 Russia was that the regime itself was so intransigent in, in January and early February, so resistant to any change, that in a way it, um, it actually accelerated uh, history itself, um, kind of its own, um, its, own, its own collapse, its own overthrow. Um, one of the things that's interesting, what you're talking about, about whether or not it's easy, you know, whether elephants can be brought down with strings, in a way, I feel two things at once. I, I think I, it might sound contradictory, but somehow I feel that there's a connection. On the one hand, I think sometimes on the left, we have actually hurt our case by, uh, by implying and by hoping that we are stronger than we are and that actually the situation is better than it is and that we, uh, you know, it, that it won't necessarily take much to kind of really change things. And I think... On the contrary, I think that one of the things that's important for, for the left to do now in, in these particularly hideous times is to be quite clear-sighted about how bad things are and to be very frank about the fact that, uh, you know, that, that, that we have a, a politically very difficult situation. But at the same time, um, and conversely, one of the lessons of history, not least of Russia in 1917, um, but elsewhere as well, is that sometimes change can come with an absolutely dizzying abruptness including in a moment when you did not think it was going to happen. A few days before the upheaval of February 1917 that came from the streets, came from the working-class women of Petrograd, you have lifetime-long activists telling each other, well, unfortunately, although people are grumbling, there's not that much activity, nothing is going to happen. A couple of weeks later, the Tsar is gone. Uh, things, when they move, sometimes against all the odds, they can move abruptly and with incredible speed. When the Arab Spring happened, a lot of the U.S. media, I'm not too sure about in the U.K., but a lot of the U.S. media really focused on the economic problems that each of the nations that were impacted by the Arab Spring, the economic situation that they were facing, as if that that was the real guiding factor, that sure, this might be about the brutality or the oppression of the leadership within those countries, but really the driving force always has to be the economy. How bad were things to create the Russian Revolution? Was it the cruelty or stupidity that brought the Tsar down? Or was it the economy? Because here in the U.S. at least, there are no revolutions unless the economy is doing bad. People are only taking to the streets because of what's happening to their wallets. Well, it might sound a little... Um uh, a little glib, but I really truly don't think there's any contradiction between the two. So when you ask, you know, was it the brutality of the regime or was it the economy? I guess my answer would be yes, um, because the two are kind of mutually constitutive and they, they uh, feed into each other, particularly in the, in the case of 1917. What you have is the, the, the central importance of the First World War, um, which is kind of uh, taking, I mean, which was going very badly for Russia, incredibly badly, and uh, that was siphoning off uh, an enormous amount of, you know, its industry and, and so on, which had been accelerating, but was still pretty uh, backward, if you like, compared to a lot of the other, the other countries. And what that meant was that you absolutely did have, you know, bread queues, you had shortages. These got worse throughout the year, but even at the beginning of the year, people are queuing for hours to get to get a few, um, you know, a few mouthfuls of bread at the beginning of the day. 
it's really important, I think, uh, you know, when you're reading the history to, to stress the extent to which these can't be distinguished because, um, you know, on the ground, people are talking on the one hand about how hard they're having to work, how low their pay is, uh, the, the shortages that are facing them. And on the other hand, they're also repeatedly talking about how they deserve dignity. The word dignity comes up again and again. Um, the, the fury at the contempt with which those at the top and the ruling class and the uh, the apparatchiks of the system treated them. So I don't. I hope I don't sound evasive when I say that I think it's. I think it's kind of both. Again, one of the things that's interesting about the political system today is you you could you could make a case that you know for for some decades in the earlier part of the 20th century there was a kind of uh, a, a kind of unspoken or in some cases spoken deal whereby the economy does well. And those in charge of the economy and society will scatter down certain kind of crumbs from the table to ameliorate the desire for control at the bottom. One of the things that's been happening since the 1970s in particular and has been accelerating recently, um, and especially since 2008, is that that implied quid pro quo is completely breaking down. And I think, I think what we have is... Uh, a particularly kind of sadistic form of neoliberalism at the moment, which even if it wanted to, and to be clear, it doesn't, but even if it wanted to, it does not have the ability to offer the kind of socks and um, and, and sort of uh, crumbs um, that it once would have done because the economy is much more constrained, because uh, because the situation is that much more difficult. And so what you have instead is a rise in a kind of a program of state violence and sadism in the place of any attempt at sort of placation or so on. So you you still see that complete combination of the pressures of the economy and the pressures of what you, I suppose you could call political dignity, but in an increasingly decadent and frightening way. You write that one salutary impact of recent extraordinary political upsets, whether that's Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, the French presidential election with more to come, has been the carnage of political givens, the humbling of the know-it-all. Now, we'll be talking about the Harvard Business School in a couple of hours on this show and the impact that they have had on the U.S. economy. How important is a humbling of the know-it-all class to a revolution? Was the know-it-all class humbled in the Russian Revolution? Is that an important aspect, important piece of the revolution? Well, to be clear, when I said that, I was, um, uh, this was in the context, as you say, of, of writing about uh, recent political events. And right. when I talk about the know-it-all, I certainly, I certainly didn't and don't only mean the know-it-all uh, of the kind of, um, you know, drop from above, the, the ruling class know-it-all. I think one of the things that's very important for us, uh, again, on the left, is to be uh, to be sort of not kind of theoretically dogmatic and close-minded, and to, uh, to to frankly engage with the fact that a lot of our theories and um, and ideas have been proved proven to be inadequate by the speed and pace and uh, and, and strangeness of recent events. So, in a kind of slightly cruel, sardonic way, it's quite an interesting thing to go back over the last two or three years and read the reams and reams of opinion pieces and um, uh, pieces on Facebook and so on and so forth, not just from liberals. I, I'm including from like very you know serious and well-read and thoughtful socialists, all saying, you know, initially, 
everyone calm down. There's no way Donald Trump can be the candidate. And then everyone calm down. There's no way at all Donald Trump can be the president. The system won't allow it. Everyone calm down or everyone, you know, stop being excited. There's no way Jeremy Corbyn is going to win the candidacy and so on and so on and so on. And this sense that whether from the whether from the right or particularly also from the left, you know, whether we like it or not, we know how the system works and the system will not work this way. Well, those algorithms have been proven wrong again and again and again. We have to accept that either the system is not working exactly as we had always understood it to work or it never did. And we have to update our theories. We have to accept that our nostrums, our sense that we basically understand the mechanics are not adequate to the task at the moment. The machine is breaking down. It's changing and it's dynamic. We have to be very frank about the limitations of, uh, of our own abilities, uh, uh, sort of prognostications and so on. I think that's a key task for the left to be able to engage seriously with the things that are happening now is to stop acting from the kind of, uh, from the principle that actually we've got this. We understand this. We know what's going to happen. Let me just pull out my little guidebook to history and apply the rules. We have to be more open-minded and more nimble. And that, just to bring it back to the historical discussion, was absolutely what distinguished, if you like, the know-it-all left from the nimble-footed left in Russia in 1917. Well, that's fascinating. You write that, uh, let's talk about another contemporary politician today, you know, a contemporary politician and another system that, you know, who knows, it might be breaking down as well. You write, in Russia, Putin's state knows that the revolution matters, which puts it in an odd position, committed to capitalism. Gangster capitalism is still capitalism. It can hardly pitch itself as an inheritor of an uprising against that system. At the same time, official and semi-official nostalgia for the symbolic bric-a-brac of great Russia, including that of Stalinist vintage, uh, precludes banishing the memory. It risks being as historian Boris Kolonitsky has put it, a very unpredictable past. I, f- I found that phrase, a very unpredictable past, fascinating. How nostalgic are Russians for their so- socialist revolutionary past, and how much is that nostalgia seen as a, a challenge or even a threat to Putin's power? Well, I think, I think um, I, I'm honestly not in a position to really uh, answer the question about... Um, Russians on the ground, because for one thing, because obviously there's an enormous plurality of opinions. I'm not a I'm not a Russia specialist. I've visited um, and I you know have friends there and so on. But I it's not it's not a place I I know intimately. Um, and my sense of it is that that uh, that memory, the memory of 1917, is precisely contested. But those people who are um, who are insisting, uh, in my opinion, quite rightly, that it is a memory. Um, that is important and potentially inspirational um, and that is, if you like, a rebuke to the status quo of history, they are in a, an embattled minority. I think uh, certain, I, certainly at a state level, there is this paradox whereby um, the, the, the kind of clique around Putin and his particular kind of politics do not want to acknowledge or deal with 1917 at all. Um, whereas, for example, they're going to go into absolutely kind of schmaltzy, nostalgic overdrive next year when it's the centenary of the Romanov death, um, because what the, the you know what the cardinal sin of the of the Bolsheviks, particularly Lenin, for uh, for the Putinites, is that they were not Russian chauvinists. They were implacably opposed to Russian chauvinism, particularly in 1917. Um, 
And this is the cardinal sin, which is why you have this peculiar uh, paradox, which is that around, again, around the same politics, around sort of Putin's politics, no one is a fan of Lenin. No one wants to talk about Lenin. So his project would seem to be completely denigrated. However, there is a fair amount of, of, of nostalgia in some of those quarters for Stalin, who, of course, proclaimed himself, I think, completely bogusly as Lenin's heir, um, because Stalin was a great Russian chauvinist. Stalin was a kind of militarist, uh, imperialist committed to the Russian state. So one of the ways in which, if you like, the official arbiters of that contested memory, one of the ways they are trying to domesticate what I think is its truly radical history um, and potentiality is to try to transform it in a really uh, sickening historical way into a formula for Russian strength, Russian power, um, uh, which is something that would make the revolutionaries absolutely spin in their graves. I, when I was in St. Petersburg, I, I spoke to some, some friends and I was asking them, you know, if the state has to actually engage with the question of 1917, if it is put to it, how will it remember it? Will it remember it with celebration or regret? And they thought about it. And then one of them said, what they will say is that there was a big argument, a big fight. It was very tragic. But in the end, Russia won. And let me just be clear, that is not a formulation that those who were fighting in those days for emancipation would recognize. We are speaking with award-winning author China Mieville. He has a new book out called October, The Story of the Russian Revolution. China is a founding editor of the quarterly Salvage. Listeners may know of Salvage from a guest who has been on This Is Hell a few times, Mr. Richard Seymour. Uh, China, you write in one sense it's uncontroversial that 1917 matters. After all, it's recent history and there's no arena of the modern world not touched by its shadow, not only in the social democratic parties shaped in opposition to revolutionary approaches and their their opponents, of course, but at the grand scale of geopolitics where the world's patterns of allegiance and rivalry and the states that make up the system bear the clear traces of the revolution, its degeneration, and decades of standoff. Now, while the legacy of the Cold War can be seen around the world, hasn't the revolution and its effects been completely erased, wiped from geopolitics with Francis Fukuyama and his end of history? Where does the revolution's legacy persist in today's world? How does, it, how does its impact still remain? Well, Fukuyama is an interesting one because, uh, you know, it's almost become a bit of a joke in the last, I would say, 15 years and acceleratingly. It's almost become a bit of a joke to say, to sort of preface uh, a political talk uh, by saying, well, you know, it turns out that, um, that history wasn't quite as ended as, as Professor Fukuyama thought it was. Um, that that sense that essentially it was going to be, to put it crudely, a kind of endless recursion of the same, but this kind of uh, triumph of, of liberal democracy is, is a claim that I think looks increasingly creaky as we, uh, you know, lurch into what I personally think of as a kind of increasingly uh, degenerating and um, politically decadent. I don't mean morally, I mean politically decadent and frightening kind of, um, uh, kind of, kind of senescent capitalism uh, and all of the kind of political excrescences that that, um, that that throws up. I think that that sense that a lot of us have that history is accelerating in a, in a truly frightening and kind of, uh, frankly, apocalyptic sense 
I don't think that's merely kind of the arrogance of despair. I don't think it's merely uh, a kind of illusion thrown up by our solipsism. I think it is, a, you know, a complicated, mediated um, antenna to something real and something that is happening. Um, uh, and and that, in you know, not in the ways that we would have predicted, is a is a rebuke to any kind of Fukuyama notion of, um, of of the end of history. In terms of the the, the ongoing legacy of 1917, I would have to be um, I would have to be open and frank and say that it is at the moment more uh, more hidden and more occult than I w- than I wish it were. Um, you know, when when I brought out this book, I was expecting to be fighting for space among a lot of narrative histories of 1917, simply because it's the centenary, irrespective of your politics. And that hasn't been the case, which I am, you know, on one level is good news for the book, but actually I'm, I'm, I'm sad about. I think, I think that that sense of, um, that sense of the, the reconfiguring of the world, again, that apocalypticism, but the apocalypticism, not only in a bad sense, that millennial rupture was given at a scale and with a potential that for a moment, for a glimmer, um, is, is, is almost incalculable, um, is a kind of, you know, Kolomitsky's phrase, you know, a kind of contested history. It's a contested memory and a contested potentiality. So I don't think it will ever go away. And I think it will come back and people will remember it and draw uh, different lessons from it um, as history accelerates. Uh, one of my hopes is that it becomes less of an occult and more of an overt uh, memory as, as our history progresses in the, in, in, in the skeetering, terrifying fashion that it is. Well, let's talk about that glimmer, that moment for a second. You describe Lenin addressing the Second Congress of Soviets on October 26, 1917. You write, in a hoarse voice, he speaks his first famous words to the gathering. We shall now proceed to construct the socialist order with respect to the war. Congress issues a proclamation to the peoples and governments of all the belligerent nations for immediate negotiation towards democratic peace. Approval is unanimous. The war is ended. You add, but the war is not yet ended, and the order that will be constructed is anything but socialist. How much did the socialist revolution in Russia fall short of its socialist promises, even from the very start? Oh, I mean, enormously. I, I think I think that uh, there's absolutely, you know, again, for this particular book, the bulk of the book is a narrative of the year itself, but there's no avoiding, and I, I don't avoid, particularly at the end, the catastrophe of what followed um, and, and what went on. And I think that, you know, in a way, the question for political history from whatever your, uh, your your own political perspective is to try to make serious, engaged sense with that collapse, rather than just waving your hands and saying, as I say, revolutions always fail. So it's perfectly true that from the word go, um, things were the, the revolution was born in an incredibly embattled um, and constrained space. Um, one of the things I try to do very quickly is to kind of gesture towards the uh, the pressures and the constraints that were forcing the revolution into deeply unhappy situations, not of its not of its choosing, and that is you know the pressure of the of the outside powers, the civil war that was bankrolled by the um, by the Allies, by the French and the German, uh, the French and the British and the Americans, um, this incredibly uh, incredibly barbaric like uh, proto-fascist in, um, insurgencies within. Within the uh, within the state, that the collapse of industry, the collapse of agriculture, and with that, 
because I don't want to offer any kind of cheap exoneration, the mistakes and the failures of the revolutionaries themselves. For me in particular, a repeated mistake and a, and a, and a deeply terrifying and, and ultimately baleful one being looking at these, in most cases, unfortunate or tragic necessities, these decisions made under terrible constraints, and trying to pretend that they were virtues, making virtues of necessities uh, from 1918 on to 1924 and beyond, I think was one of the things that the Bolsheviks in particular, there is a serious case to answer. It was a serious mistake, and it would have been less damaging um, for them to simply, simply acknowledge, frankly, as they sometimes did, and as some of them did, that the situation that they were in was was deeply uh, not of their choosing and that they were being forced into making decisions and doing uh, political actions that they would not otherwise choose. But I do think that the kind of primary constraining context for that was the fact that, uh, you know, the, the regime was encircled and embattled and absolutely assaulted both politically and military and ideologically. Um, and it always knew, it always said early on that, the only way it would survive was in the context of international insurgency, of an international drive for freedom, revolutions in, in Europe. And in the early years after 1917, there was still serious and non-stupid, non-crazy hope that this would happen. There were upsurges of revolt across Europe. The tragedy for the revolution was that they were ultimately defeated. And from 1922, 23 in particular onwards, the kind of grim realization that they were on their own, um, put the revolution in a situation not only that it never wanted to be in, but that for years beforehand it had always said, we will not be able to survive if that is the situation we are in. One of the key mistakes they made, I think, was in 1924 saying, we can have socialism in one country after years of having said, we will not be able to construct socialism in one country. And that is the kind of panicked optimism that actually is worse than a hard-headed pessimism under circumstances not of your choosing. But you write at one point how the Russian Revolution can be our revolution. Do you mean that in a global sense that what the, what the Russian Revolution introduced to us was this idea that we might be able to move forward globally? And how much did that global revolution, how much was it ended simply by World War I? Well, World War One was interesting because World War One is also, in a very direct way, one of the key causes of the Russian Revolution. So, um, the 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 war was, if you like, both a uh, both a limiting and a propulsive factor in these politics. And it, it, it's very difficult to talk about it in general. You have to sort of talk about the specifics of the of the individual uh, arenas and countries and moments and so on. Um, in terms of how you know where I to say that you know it can be ours, we can finish its sentences. To to, to cite uh, a quote from Virginia Woolf in a different context, what I'm I'm tr what I don't want to do is to imply, as I think sometimes is implied in a far too facile way, that we kind of really uh, uh, reductively apply the you know the quote lessons so that we essentially try to mimic, if, if you are a radical, if you do want to see fundamental social change, emancipatory change, but what you essentially try and do is mimic the Bolsheviks in a very direct way. I think that's not serious because 
what you know one of the things about thinking seriously politically is you have to look at the specifics and the particularities and so the specific and particular shape of the russian revolution and of the politics of the revolutionaries is because of the particularities of russia in 1917 so we can't draw a kind of direct analogy in some way that would be i mean i've used this phrase before but that would be politics by cosplay and i'm not interested in that um which isn't to say that we can't learn a great deal from uh, both the revolutionaries, many of them, particularly Lenin, but others, had an amazing political antenna for how to kind of respond to rapid events. But also, and this is the key to your question, I think, the scale of the, of the ambition, the scale of the aspiration and the drive, not merely to kind of, you know, improve this or that aspect of the life of people on the ground, noble enough as that ambition is, but to say the system is responsible for these uh, exploitations and oppressions, and that the scale of our the scale of our project is to overturn a system predicated on extraction and profit, and to actually build a world that is predicated on a system based on human need. In any sane society, that would be a given. It would be self-evident that you build society based on human need, not profit. But we live in such an extraordinary bad timeline that that seems like a bizarre aspiration. One of the amazing things about the Russian Revolution is the is the the insistence on what is both a very very simple and an awe-inspiringly extraordinary claim, which is that you can build a system based on need, not on exploitation and profit. And that I think is something um, that is ongoingly an intense but kind of revelation and vindication of. Of, of an intuition that I think we absolutely need to return to. China, just a couple more questions for you. When you write about uh, how by 1919 Russian territory is occupied by American, French, British, Japanese, German, Serbian, and Polish troops, socialism, the Red Baculus, is more irksome to the Americans, British, and French than are their wartime foes. And you quote the uh, American ambassador to Russia about the evils of socialism. You quote um, Winston Churchill talking about how he's more concerned with socialism than German militarism. So there's a lot of concern about socialism that's happening around the world, especially in the West. To what degree did Russians create hope with their revolution and then outsiders created the at least fertile environment for authoritarianism to take hold? Can we, to what degree can we, you know, give Russians credit for the revolution and then blame the counter-revolution, the Stalinism and the authoritarianism that led later on uh, to outside interference? Um, I don't think it's quite that simple in the sense that it's not really, I don't think, very helpful to, to think of the sides in this fight as Russians versus others. Because, for one thing, you know, there were plenty of Russians who were implacably opposed to social change, who were, in fact, nostalgic for the most extreme kinds of reaction and um, and and uh, hierarchy, uh, the you know the the, the counter revolutionary armies called the whites, the white armies, um, you know extraordinary um, purveyors of mass butchery, anti Semitic murder, um, uh, but these were you know these were Russians and they were dreaming of a particular shape of of Russia, um, and they were bankrolled not by non Russians but by you know, those in command of the states of the, you know, of the non-Russian capitalist powers, whereas plenty of grassroots Brits and, and French and Germans and Americans 
were very inspired by the revolution. One of the key things of the revolution in Russia, um, the revolutionaries, and I, not just the Bolsheviks, to be clear, also the left socialist revolutionaries and various other of the radical groups, some of the anarchists and so on, part of one of the things that was key to their program um, early on was precisely that they were internationalists. For them, the, the, the units of history were not uh, this state versus that state. It was about, you know, those states were fractured. So I certainly, don't, you know, and, and that it was fundamentally, after, you know, after a lot of other stuff, it was, it was to do with class. So I don't want to suggest that, you know, the Russians did the revolution and then the foreigners came in and ruined it. I think it was, you know, uh, 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 if you like, you know, the, the, the oppressed of Russia, the masses of Russia who were, uh, and, the, and the radicals who were, whose revolution this was, and their own ex-leaders and their own right wing and their own um, authoritarians were in happy allegiance with those authoritarians and, and um, conservatives in Europe and beyond. Um, where the grassroots would have been, you know, w- would have had great fidelity to the Russian Revolution. So I, I think that there are clearly schisms, but it's a schism based on, on a political model, based on what you think politics should be, not on nationality. Which, huh. just to, to add, I think should also be a key, a, a key political lesson for us today. You know, uh, as a, as a Brit, for example, you know, I am not, you know, I am not out. There, there are plenty of people who are not British whom I'm far, far politically closer than a lot of Brits. It's an obvious point, but it's worth reiterating. One last question for you, China. We have been speaking with award-winning author China Mieville. He has a new book out called October, The Story of the Russian Revolution. China is known especially for his science fiction novels and has won the Hugo World Fantasy and Arthur C. Clarke Awards. China's nonfiction includes the photo-illustrated essay London's Overthrow and Between Equal Rights, A Study of International Law. He's a founding editor of the Quarterly Salvage, which you should definitely visit online on a regular basis. Listeners may know of Salvage from a guest who has been on This Is Hell a few times in the past, Mr. Richard Seymour. China, one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. The audience is going to hate your response. You write that October for an instant brings a new kind of power fleetingly. There is a shift towards workers' control of production and the rights of peasants to the land, equal rights for men and women in work and and in marriage, the right to divorce, maternity support, the decriminalization of homosexuality 100 years ago, moves toward national self-determination, free and universal education, the expansion of of literacy and with literacy comes a cultural explosion, a thirst to learn, the mushrooming of universities and lecture series and adult schools, uh, a change in the soul as much as in the factory. And those and though those moments are snuffed out, reversed, become bleak jokes and memories are all too soon. It might have been otherwise. Now that sounds great. I wish that it had been otherwise. But do you think revolution again and eventually successful? is inevitable. Oh, inevitable? Absolutely not. No, I, I think, let me put it this way, I, I think that revolution is not only not inevitable, I think that given the pressures, you know, bearing down on us from those who, who want nothing to change, I think it will be, you know, an immense effort to, to lead to any kind of uh, fundamental radical change that is what I think of as, spoken, you know, uh, as, 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 uh, as revolutionary. What I don't, so I don't think it's inevitable. What I do think is that it's possible. And further than that, I think that if we want to have a world fit for humans, I think it's necessary. And I think it is something that we have to build for. 
China, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. This is a fascinating book. All of our listeners should be checking, should be buying it and reading it. Award-winning author China Mieville has been our guest this morning. He's been discussing his new book, October, The Story of the Russian Revolution. Thank you so much for being on This Is Hell. Thank you for having me. Take care. Hi. Yes. Thank you for listening to this week's show and for sticking with us through Chuck's various injuries over the years. He's like if Cal Ripken smoked weed and got hurt all the time. It's actually pretty inspiring. Okay. uh, See you next week. Hopefully live. Bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more hell, visit thisishell.com.